G'day, mate. Forty here, looking at the Washington Post. Absolutely heartbreaking story here. Top of the Washington Post right now. In wake of Ralph Yarl shooting, black teens face fear and resignation. So the Ralph Yarl shooting—that's Ralph showed up at the wrong door, and when he banged, I don't know the full context of everything that he did when he knocked on the door, but he ended up getting shot by a white homeowner. And so if you look at this homeowner, you can see the guy badly needs Alexander technique. He's 84 years of age. Like, look, look, he's stuck in that fight or flight reflex. So if you go through life in that, stuck in that fight or flight reflex where you've got no length with your neck, no freedom in your neck, you're just hunched, hunched forward, right? You're out of alignment, right? When you're in fight or flight, you're going to either fight or you're going to fight or you're going to freeze, all right? Or you're going to try to... Uh, plead and try to disarm people, but uh, it's not really a good way to go through life. And then the other guy who shot a white woman who just drove up the wrong, the wrong driveway. His name's uh, Kalen Gillis, and you see no neck. All right, all right. His his head is just pulled back onto his spine, so not a lot of freedom in in the neck. So it's hard to have freedom in your life, freedom in your emotions, freedom in how you make choices. All right, when you've got no freedom in your head-neck-back relationship. But anyway, this Washington Post story is just ridiculous, all right? Here's the headline. In wake of Ralph Yaw shooting, black teens face fear of resignation. Okay, so from whom do black teens most have fear and, and, and resignation, all right? So if they get shot, the odds are about 90% that they'll be shot by someone who's black, all right? The odds are about 88% that they'll be shot by a black male. Probably the odds are about 80% that they'll be shot by a black male in his teens, 20s, or 30s. All right, so black women aren't going around shooting people. Old black people aren't going around shooting people. Uh, black infants aren't going around shooting people. Right? To the extent that uh, blacks in America have to fear getting shot, have to overwhelmingly fear getting shot by a subsection of their own community. Right? But this article wants to play up that uh, this, this particular sixth grader, Justin Monroe, knows that not all cops are actually going to help you in the situation that you're in. Well, guess what? For white people, for brown people, for Latinos, for Jews, for Muslims, not all cops are going to help you in any situation that you get into, right? Not all cops are going to be wonderful. Now, groups, tribes, communities, they develop reputations. And those reputations will have a significant effect on how willing uh, police and other people are to help you or to hurt you. So to the extent that this 84-year-old man who shot Ralph Yarl was frightened by the image of a black teenager showing up on his doorstep, that was primarily, I would suspect, not a result of that man's bigotry, racism, irrational fears. That was primarily the result of horrific behavior by a tiny subsection of the black community. So just like Muslims have become associated with terrorism in the eyes of most non-Muslims in the West because of the horrific behavior of a very tiny percentage of Muslims, so too the horrific behavior by a tiny subsection of blacks in committing astronomical amounts of murder and other forms of you know, grievous violence. All right, they have made people afraid and hostile towards blacks. So 
this problem, just as it is with every group in America of which I'm aware, is primarily an intergroup problem. It's an intergroup problem, not an intergroup problem. Problem is not cops primarily, right? And uh, talks about this black mom has had the talk with her son, the summer conversation about the special rules that they must adhere to when talking to police, where to place their hands when pulled over in a traffic stop, tips on how to avoid becoming a target. I, I would think the opposite. If black black men in particular, particularly young black men who are pulled over by police, if they simply adhere to the same rules as everybody else, they would be less likely to get shot. So not a good idea to fight with people who have guns. Not a good idea to disrespect people who have guns. Not a good idea to disrespect people on social media or in rap lyrics or in music videos. People who have guns, whether those people are police or not police, people have guns. If people have the power to hurt you, it's not a good idea to disrespect them. So if you simply treat them <laughs> with, the, with the appropriate level of respect of anyone that you'd give to who has the power to hurt you, you are much less likely to get hurt. People are more likely to think that uh, black young men are dangerous, they're told, so be careful. So yeah, if your group gets a reputation, then that's going to affect you, right? In, in Anglo-Saxon countries, we tend to think of people as primarily individuals. But the way the world works is that outsiders do not primarily see us individuals. When I walk down the street wearing a yarmulke, most people do not see me as an individual. They see me as an Orthodox Jew. And feelings they have about Orthodox Jews or the Jewish state of Israel, right, they're very likely to translate to me. Right, so people will yell at me about uh, Israel. They'll yell at me about you know, Jews controlling the, the Federal Reserve, stuff like that. When I walk down the street, it has absolutely nothing to do with me as an individual. But a new fear is creeping into the talk in the wake of the shooting of a black teen in Kansas City, Missouri. There have been tearful conversations, new rules about interacting with strangers, and a sense of resignation. So parents say black children, particularly boys, are at risk. Yeah, they are at risk. And they're primarily at risk from other black boys and black young men, right? They're not primarily at risk from nasty, racist, you know, vicious non-blacks, right? This is primarily an in-group problem. It's not primarily an out-of-group problem. So Jason Kessler is discouraged by his in-group. So apparently Jason Kessler, the organizer of Unite the Right, apparently is stepping back from political activism. After seven years as a political activist, journalist, and commentator, I am retiring from public life to focus on other hobbies. So I, I didn't notice a you know widespread feeling of grief in reaction to this commentary. Over the better part of the last year, my baby has been working on the Happenings video program for you guys. I put as much effort into it as I have anything that I cared about from attending college to starting a business or writing a book. I hope to use the platform as a way to move myself beyond the specter of Charlottesville and build a devoted following who could help me achieve political goals. So what made him think that he had a devoted following? I was never aware of Jason having a devoted following. But when the computer I needed to broadcast my program crashed, I required help to defray the cost of purchasing a machine to continue my work. So yeah, it's a good idea to live within reality and to notice when people are supporting or not supporting you. I, I was never aware of uh, Jason Kessler having a devoted following. So I see this, you know, with all sorts of people who assume that they have 
now much more devoted following that they are providing much more valuable services than they really are almost all of us tend to have an exaggerated sense of our own importance and uh, Jason Kessler has apparently run smack dab into the face of reality and it's shaken him up. Says, I hope to use the platform as a way to move myself beyond the specter of Charlottesville and build a devoted following who could help me achieve political goals. Well, was that ever realistic that uh, Jason Kessler would, would build a devoted following who would help him achieve political goals? But when the computer I needed to broadcast my program crashed, I required help to defray the cost of purchasing a machine to continue my work. After almost a year, I felt I'd reached a sink or swim moment where I should no longer be expected to spend my own money for costs associated with working for the public. So yeah, one great way to gauge your importance is how much money do you make from your live streams? <laughs> so how many donations do you make? You know, how many members do you have to your channel? Uh... How many views do you get to your videos? Uh, a pretty good indication of your relative importance. So I have relatively low viewership, you know, relatively low, you know, financial support. And so I don't expect anything from you. And I do this for fun. So this is, I, I think, a pretty clear relationship. You, you, you never disappoint me because I don't expect anything. Objectively, happenings and I sank. That's what happens when you go into conflict with reality, all right? Whenever you fight reality, reality always wins. Only one person donated, and though I am heartbroken, this is an objective metric I cannot deny. I would think that this is the best decision for Jason Kessler and people like him, like to move away from political activism. Very few people are really cut out and benefit from a life of political activism. If I haven't inspired your loyalty and devotion after all these years of sacrifices... If I can't convince you that what I'm doing is worth even a dollar to you, then there is no hope of us accomplishing greater things in the future, things which will require real commitment to make a measurable difference in the world. Uh, Jason, if you cannot inspire loyalty and devotion, then you're probably not the right man for this kind of task. All right? So it's, it's, not, a, it's not a horrible thing to recognize that you're you know, not the right man for a particular task, right? I am not a great singer. I am not a great dancer. I'm not a great athlete, right? I, I am not a, an inspiring religious figure. I am not uh, cut out to be a teacher of the Bible, all right? I'm just a bloke who does a show that is entertaining and amusing and useful to a small number of people. And that's it, all right? If I tried to become an accountant, I wouldn't be cut out for it. There, there are all sorts of tasks, tasks that I'm simply not cut out for. And, you know, just simply recognizing that you're not cut out for something is a wonderful thing. To be honest, Jason says, I'm insulted enough that my pride would never allow me to go back to political commentary again. All right? Do you believe that? I mean, that's definitely how he feels right now, but is that really going to be the truth. Is he never going back to political commentary again? That it would be like taking back an unfaithful woman, a humiliation. Well, many men do take back unfaithful women. Why do men take back unfaithful women? Because they see that compared to the alternatives, it's a better deal. So that's why men take back unfaithful women and people often return to political commentary. 
all right, because they love doing it, all right? And why is this an insult to his pride? Because he had an exaggerated sense of his own importance. He had an exaggerated sense of his own following. And so when you get humiliated, it's invariably because you're out of touch with reality. So I've had jobs where I thought I was important to the, to the job. And guess what? I wasn't. I got fired. <laughs> and they replaced me with someone who was uh, less expensive. And apparently I wasn't that important. <laughs> People say not to compare yourself to others. Look, we can't help but compare ourselves to others, right? So that's stupid saying don't compare yourself to others. But what you can do is not allow it to overwhelm you and disable you. We need to compare ourselves to others for information. So we kind of know what's going on, know what the score is. We need to compare ourselves to other people for connection, right? And connection, information, inspiration, uh, a scorecard, right? All valid reasons to compare yourself to others. It's inevitable you're going to compare yourself to others, so you might as well know that it's for good reasons. But it doesn't have to be disabling. Like, I, I'm a happy guy, I think, and I do a happy show, and I'm not disabled that I get, you know, one one thousandth of the viewers of Dennis Prager or Alex Jones or uh, Nick Fuentes or you know, J.F. Garapi or Richard, or whoever, or Andrew Holt or Lester Holt, who does, like, it's not a big deal to me. I notice, yeah, I notice when my views go from, you know, 7 to 10 to 15 to 20 to 200. And yeah, I'd rather do a show for 200 people than 20 people, right? So I, I notice, you know, other people who are more successful than I am. I get information from that. And sometimes I'll, I'll seek out advice or community from other people. So there's no point denying yourself the ability to compare yourself to others, right? Y you are going to do that, but it doesn't have to become disabling for you, right? I, I notice people who churn out, you know, a lot of what I think is, you know, low IQ, stupid content like uh, Ben Shapiro or much of what Dennis Prager does. But they are telling an audience what it wants to hear. Like they are meeting a need. Tucker Carlson, he's telling an audience what it wants to hear and as a result, he has a huge audience. If uh, Dennis and Ben and Tucker started telling people tough truths that they didn't want to hear, what would happen? They would have far fewer viewers, right? They would have less status, less uh, money, right? They, it would come as a as, you know, very painful shock to them. Jason says, I can't help looking at all the other commentators out there who are making six figures like Z-Man says he does at Amran. Okay, so does Z-Man really make six figures? Uh, Z-Man meets, meets a need, and he tells people things that they want to hear. Or become a millionaire like Nick Fuentes. Nick Fuentes is incredibly talented at what he does. Right? Very, very few people, like one person in 10,000 has... Nick Fuentes's abilities. So it's just simply not on for 99.9% .9 of people. Or even charging $300 a ticket for a meetup like Richard Spencer did recently. Okay, Richard Spencer again is, is incredibly talented at, at what he does. 
Another guy recently needed money for rent, had to send out multiple emails telling people to stop donating because they'd sent too much already. So these people have more talent than uh, Jason Kessler. And or they are better at telling people what they want to hear. Jason says, I have to go into debt buying equipment because I have a negative value, apparently. Well, it's better to know that now, right? Like, be glad for getting these painful truths before one continues making a fool of oneself. Like, there are things that Jason Kessler can do in life that will be good for him, that will be well-suited for him, that will uh, be a blessing for both him, for people who care about him, and for other people. And I don't know what that is. It may mean opening up a car repair shop. It may mean going to work as an employee for an insurance company. It may mean, you know, going, getting a, a job at uh, a supermarket. The point is not to hate on those guys' success. It's to demonstrate that incentives are provided for content creators that the community cares about. I'm just not one of them. Uh, Jason Kessler could have gotten this message many, many years ago. He could have taken this message four years ago and not wasted the last four years of his life. It stings, but the community doesn't love me and never will. Okay, it does sting when the community doesn't love you and never will. And so no more person would think, hey, it's time to move on. Right? I, I don't need <laughs> to keep banging my head against the wall. Rather than wasting your time on mine, I will move on to other pursuits. Exactly. He probably should have done this many years ago. Probably for the best, as I have accumulated a lot of bitterness, resentment, and anger about how little backup we had after Charlottesville from the right, even from the established white nationalist community. Okay. So this bitterness, resentment, and anger is not serving you. So there are techniques for noticing it, tracking it, understanding why you have bitterness, resentment, and anger, but it doesn't serve you, all right? You're drinking poison and hoping that the other guys get sick. Also feels like I've been trapped in a sinking ship with people engaged in a constant circular firing squad. Everyone is a fed, etc. Well, this is the community that you chose to fight for. This is your community, right? These are your people. So maybe it's not in your interest to affiliate with them anymore, right? Maybe you were wrong. Like maybe notice where you went wrong and you can learn from it. I'm tired of being angry all the time. Okay, so that's on you. If I am angry, I want to inspect that and change it within myself rather than lashing out at an intractable and frustrating political landscape. Yeah, so this idea that you can just change the world, right? very few people can change history. So in, in 2007, I wrote a blog post that uh, Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa, his, uh, his marriage was over. And that precipitated a series of revelations about Antonio Villaraigosa that ended his uh, political career. And it was perhaps the top story in California in 2007. So that was one way I made a tiny difference in, in the world. But those opportunities are quite rare. For those researching me in the future and judging me by my past, this is truly the end of this phase of my life. To the extent possible, I wish to extend my spiritual development beyond the toxic world of politics, which, from my vantage point, has absolutely corrupted nearly everyone of all political affiliations who engages in. Well, has it really? I mean, it hasn't been good for you. But just because it hasn't been good for you doesn't mean that it's corrupted nearly everyone. Jason says, my social media web presence will likely be deleted in the near future. So how many people will experience this as a great sense of loss that uh, Jason Kessler 
deletes his web presence. I will say that probably as many people will experience this as a great sense of loss as people who would feel you know, a great sense of loss if I deleted my web presence. All right, so talking a few dozen, maybe a few hundred people at max. What role does money play in my daily life? Well, when I am going backwards in my daily life, all right, financially going backwards when I am, say, spending more money than I am earning, that makes me feel heavy. It makes me feel unmasculine, incompetent, uh, not happy, all right? Unless, I mean, I didn't feel that way when I took three months off to go to Australia, and I didn't feel that way when I took two months to go to Australia the year before. But if it's inadvertent and I'm going backwards despite the best of my efforts, then that is sobering, it is depressing, it is anxiety-making, it, uh, it would reduce my confidence and strength to be able to do these shows. So sometimes when I've uh, stopped doing, the, doing these shows for, for a week or two at a time, it's because I've had some kind of financial setback. And it's like, oh, let me just take time off and reassess everything. So the, the direction of my financial life has a substantial effect on my happiness because it's a pretty strong measure of your competence and whether you are being a blessing and a service to other people or not. Right? Jason Kessler isn't attracting a devoted following because apparently he isn't meeting many people's needs. When I'm going backwards inadvertently, despite my best efforts financially, it's because I've been selfish. It's because I haven't been interested in being of service to other people. It means that you know I'm out of alignment with reality. And so this is sobering. This is sad. This is somewhat depressing. This kind of knocks me back. It kills my confidence. On the other hand, when I'm saving money, then then I feel good when I'm paying my bills, when I'm meeting my responsibilities, when I'm donating up to about 10% of my income. I, I primarily donate to Orthodox Jewish institutions, right? Then I feel good. Like I'm, I'm carrying my weight. I'm being an adult. I'm saving for retirement. So I'm 56 years of age. So I'm saving for a rainy day. I'm saving for retirement. I pay all my bills and I contribute to the wider Jewish community around me. And so I want to you know, feel good as I'm walking through the Jewish community that I'm stepping up. Like there are, there are institutions and there are uh, groups in Orthodox Judaism that I contribute to that, uh, that benefit me and that benefit my wider community. Yeah, I, I plan to keep live streaming into my 90s. Okay, my dad was still quite lucid until about a month before he died at age 90. Bernard says, my financial life is getting better. I'm probably getting my third pay rise in less than a year soon. Yeah, so as your financial life gets better, Bernard, I assume that you feel happier. And when you feel happier, you're a more of a blessing to the people around you. When you're a mope, when you're depressed, when you're dejected, when you're feeling down, when you lack confidence in yourself, that's a drag on others, right? So about the most moral thing that you can do for other people is to get your financial house together, uh, earn money in a legal and upstanding way. <laughs> I, 
I don't know if it's the power of positive thinking. I think it's the power of living within reality. Uh, money really matters. It may not be the number one most important thing in life. I don't think it is, but it's certainly in the, the top three. Right? What you can do in life, what you can support, you know, how you can help right, is largely determined by your money. And if you don't meet your adult responsibilities, then you're a drag on others. And how can you feel good about yourself if you are consistently a drag on other people? So money is a good measure, right? Not a perfect measure of where you are in life, but it's a really good measure of reality and probably one that uh, Jason Kessler should pay attention to. I remember when I was coming out of uh, six years of chronic fatigue syndrome and I had this wonderful psychiatrist in Orlando, Florida, and he, he got me on this medication, Nardil, that started restoring me to normal life. And I went from like 120 pounds to like 160 pounds in, in about three or four months. And so I started feeling good. And one of the first things he said as I was recovering was, get out there and show me how much money you can make. Because if you earn the money legally, you know, in an upstanding fashion, it will, it will be ennobling, it, particularly if you've had a, a long period where you've just been lying around. So get out there, show me how much money you can make. Really good advice for, for a lot of people, particularly those who haven't been devoting themselves to hard work. All right, let's check in with our friend Ethan Rao. He would be nothing but a... So I'm going to see my son today for the fifth time, and I'm very excited about it. But it just made me think about something. You know, I got letters back in... 2020, two different letters. One was written to somebody else. One was written directly to me. And they told me that I would never see my son. That he would be nothing but a monster that his family told him about. Nothing but a boogeyman that his family told him about. That he would never see me, he would never meet me, and he would never know me. And I just want to tell those people... Thank you, because you gave me the gumption, you gave me the strength, you gave me the confidence, quite frankly, uh, because I thought you might be right, uh, but you gave me the inner strength to fight you to the end of the goddamn earth, and that's exactly what I'm going to do, and I will be in my son's life, and uh, I'm going to prove that later today, so... Thank you. I want to thank those two handwritten letters for really giving me the inspiration. Man, I was hoping he'd launch into song. You're the inspiration. You're the one who helps me make a better day. So let's not give in. Okay, Ralph was so outrageously high on Xanax last night, he, he forgot who he conducted an interview with minutes after it ended. Well, I think we've all we've all been there. No judgment. Who who was that that I was even talking to, by the way? Going towards the speeds. Who was that that I was talking to? Just being vulnerable. I'm not kidding. I'm just I just been Bunching bars for days. I literally don't even remember who the fuck I was talking to. Like, who the fuck was I just talking to?
I've just been munching for days. I really don't even know. Did I actually talk to Milo? I did not. No way. Did I talk to Milo? Please don't make clip it. Holy shit. Oh, oh, it was that. Oh, yeah, no, it was the, um, no, I know how to talk to you. Ollie Accuser. Okay. Wow. Ethan Ralph. All right. Have have you guys watched uh, the Seinfeld episode season seven, episode two, the postponement, where Elaine confides in a rabbi who lives in her building? Now, when Christians confide to their clergy, it's usually taken for granted that what they confide is confidential. That's not how it usually works in Jewish life. All right. There's no immediate assumption of confidentiality when you confide with with a rabbi. So it's not like you confide with your therapist or you confide with your lawyer or your accountant where you can assume confidentiality or when you confide in a priest, you can assume confidentiality. It doesn't work that way in Jewish life. Usually rabbis will use what they say for the good of the community. So this is uh, season seven. This evening, find you. Well, Rabbi, well. I trust you're here to see your friend Elaine. Yeah, that's right. I hope she's feeling better. What do you mean? She didn't tell you? No. Well, it seems the engagement of her friend George has left her feeling bitter and hostile. Is that so? Oh, yes. In fact, she... So I've often heard it said that uh, when you send a text message or an email, just imagine it being, say, broadcast on you know, a full stadium uh, screen. All right. So just imagine that tens of thousands of people could read it. It's also a good moral guide for life. Just imagine that whatever you're saying and doing shows up on the front page of the newspaper. Another good moral guide for life is to operate as though everybody knows everything. Not perfectly true, but a good guide for life instead of trying to get away with stuff. He told me that she wishes she was the one who was getting married. Really? <laughs> he came off as pretty desperate. I didn't know any of this. Apparently, she doesn't think much of this George fellow either. I recall the word loser peppered throughout her conversation. <laughs> well, this all comes as news to me. <laughs> Hi. So, yeah, if our if our friends knew what we really thought of them, you know, n- nobody would have have any friends. Uh, you had a little talk with them too. Yeah, we talked earlier. Yes, I know, I know. <laughs> so, what does that mean? Nothing. So the Elaine character is not Jewish, and so she automatically assumed anything she confided with the rabbi would stay confidential. Nothing. <laughs> he didn't mention... Yes, he did. He told you about the conversation? Oh, we had quite a little chat. He told you about... Yes, about how you were very jealous of George, how you wish you were getting married instead of him. He told you that? How could he? And it didn't take much... So, yeah, it's best if you really have painful things to confide, that you only confide them to people who are legally obligated to maintain 
<laughs> maintain your confidentiality. Okay, let's uh, let's have a look at the chat. Gunnar says, I don't agree with Ford on the money issue. The most popular people aren't exactly the highest value, but they do get the most value. You see Trad Thoughts getting tons of viewers. Well, they're providing value. It's just not value that you would see as value. All right. It's like, why are some people so up in arms about Bud Light? You know, Bud Light having that trend, trans person representing them. And for people who love Bud Light, uh, it was like really made them mad. Okay. So. I would expect that very few of my viewers have a, an intense connection with Bud Light. But you're not a bad person, right? I know some of my higher IQ friends would think, you know, what kind of moron has an intense bond with, with Bud Light? Well, a person with a 100 IQ, right, doesn't have a whole lot of possibilities in life. Uh, let's say he works a job and then one of his great pleasures is coming home and drinking Bud Light. And let's say he's a heterosexual guy, he's married and he doesn't appreciate that Bud Light has a trans male to female spokesmodel. Okay. Now, what he sees as value, Bud Light, all right, you don't see it as value, but for him, Bud Light represents value. I, I don't think you know, Bud Light plays, you know, a huge role in the lives of my viewers. You see Trad Hot, Trad Thoughts, and Gamers as top YouTubers, while high IQ dudes get very few viewers. Yes. The trad thoughts and the gamers are providing value to a certain audience. Higher IQ shows, all right, they have a high, a much lower potential audience. And then, even of the people who could potentially be interested, they're putting on shows that are much more intellectually demanding. So they're going to be far fewer people who will, uh, you know, want to take them in. Luke Ford is boring now, but even at his peak, some random trad thought would blow him out in terms of viewership. Doesn't mean that Ford wasn't higher value at one point. Value for who? See, Gunnar, you're just looking at everything through your eyes and what provides value for you. But uh, what provides value for the 110 person, the 105 person, the 100 person, the 95 IQ person is very different from what provides value for you. So you just take it for granted. The value for Gunnar Loonbloom is to alpha it's just the objective standard of value, and it's not. I'm sorry to break that news to you. You have a particular hero system. You have a particular humor system, right? You have particular ways of understanding and ranking value, but that only really applies to you and people like you, all right? You're 135, 140 IQ dude, all right? So what provides you value is going to be very different than what provides the 115 IQ and lower person value. Prodding either, I have to say. Can he do that? He did. Yeah, can a rabbi divulge what you thought was confidential? Can he do that? And the answer is yes. Now, priests aren't supposed to, and priests, I would assume, rarely do so. Also, I would generally think that uh, Protestant ministers would uh, maintain confidentiality, but I I'm not as, not as uh, sure on, on that end as perhaps I should be. But uh, before you confide, right, you need to know, is it really confidential? Is it but really he's a rabbi. Whole? How can a rabbi have such a big mouth? That's yeah, well, <laughs> rabbis will preach about Lashon Hara, meaning evil speech, the, the evils of gossip. But rabbis gossip as much as plumbers, accountants, doctors, dentists, lawyers, business people. Rabbis gossip all the time. 
And so what you confide to a rabbi will very much likely end up in their gossip. Only they don't call it gossip. gossip. They call it, you know, looking out for the welfare of the community. They call it talking shop. Okay. Luke, would you consider me high value if I made $800,000 a year and have a net worth of $14.5 million? Yes. <laughs> I would consider you having high financial value. But your tastes for what constitutes high value in a live stream, all right, that is unique to you. And there will be some people similar taste to you, but uh, those who get great value from a Tratbot live stream or a Gamer live stream, all right, they simply have different tastes than you do. Your tastes are not objective truth and objective measures of value for everyone. It's so fascinating. <laughs> Okay, so Elaine, a little surprised that her conversation with the, with the rabbi wasn't uh, kept uh, confidential. Can I offer you some kasha varnishkas? <laughs> no, no. Listen, Rabbi, I'd like to ask you a question. Why? Why did you tell my friend Jerry what I talked to you about? All right, so again, she's presuming that uh, conversations with the rabbi are confidential. And they're not. They're not, guys. They're not. There is the, the, the rare rabbi who will hold... They hold it in the vault, but that is not the de facto mode for rabbis. Was that a problem for you? Of course it was a problem for Also, this uh, rabbi seems to be somewhat uh, socially inept. Me. You, you, didn't, you didn't tell anyone else about this, did you? Well, let's see. <laughs> I seem to recall a conversation with Mrs. Winston in 1F. <laughs> Okay, so this uh, particular episode ends with uh, George and his fiance in bed watching the rabbi's uh, community access cable TV show. That's the rabbi from Elaine's building. I just met this guy the other day. <laughs> a young lady I know. Let's call her Elaine. <laughs> happened to find herself overwhelmed with feelings of resentment and hostility for her friend. Let's call him George. <laughs> she felt that George was somewhat of a loser and that she was the one who deserved to be married first. She also happened to mention to me that her friend had wondered if going to a prostitute while you're engaged is considered cheating. <laughs> Okay, that's gold. It's absolute gold. Okay, so looking at the Los Angeles Times. Nice uplifting story here. Faith lifted Pittsburgh Jews in long wait for massacre trial. So I think approximately 12 Jews were massacred at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. The... Uh, the gunman had sought them out based on their affiliation with Hias, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. So faith lifted Pittsburgh Jews in long wait for massacre trial. So three Jewish congregations resolute in their defiance of the hatred that tried to destroy them are still waiting for justice. So this might be me, but I would think that uh, the best thing that they can do is to add security so all these synagogues where Jews have gotten murdered in the United States, they didn't have any security out front. Right? And there's nothing, nothing in this story about uh, these 
Jewish groups adding security. Right? Perhaps these organizations, these groups, communities ought to uh, man up and not just leave their security to God and to Holocaust education. Right? Holocaust education is not a super reliable means for deterring criminal activity. So if these Jewish congregations are resolute in their defiance of the hatred that tried to destroy them, they might learn how to legally carry guns to protect themselves. So what's the best way of honoring the Jews who were murdered? Perhaps taking steps to minimize the chances of more Jews getting murdered, such as developing security so that these attacks will be less effective in the future or completely deterred. But no, these groups are just doubling down on the left-wing activism that may well have triggered the attack. Right? And as far as waiting for justice, even if the gunman here is sentenced to death, th- that's no justice. All right? It's the best that can be done. But there's no justice possible here. Twelve innocent people were murdered. So, but each in their own ways. Yeah, but each in ineffective ways, apparently, just judging from the descriptions in the article. Each in their own left-wing ways, members are finding renewed purpose in honoring those lost in the attack, in the bold practice of their faith. Judaism is not primarily a faith, right? There's an element of faith in it, but it's primarily a tribal identity and practicing the rituals of the the tribe, right? It's not a faith. That's a Christian perspective. In activism on issues like gun violence and immigration, in taking a stand against anti-Semitism and other forms of bigotry, we will never do away with bigotry as long as there's in-group identity, right? There will be hatred and hostility towards our groups. On the Sunday, the day before jury selection in the Pittsburgh shooter, the Tree of Life congregation is having a closure ceremony for its historic building. A closure ceremony? What the hell nonsense is that? Twelve people were slaughtered. There's no closure. Like, why would there be closure? Twelve members of your tribe, of your community, of your loved ones were slaughtered. Why the hell are you holding closure ceremonies? How gay is that? Now, this is obviously not an Orthodox synagogue. I'd like to think that Orthodox synagogues would not hold closure ceremonies. The congregation and a partner organization plan a major overhaul of the site, which will combine worship space with a memorial and anti-Semitism education, including about the Holocaust. Yeah, that's really going to keep Jews safe. Anti-Semitism education. Dor Hadash, founded 60 years ago, is Pittsburgh's only congregation in the progressive reconstructionist movement of Judaism. Many members are drawn to its interlocking focuses on worship, study, and social activism. Well, Reconstructionist Judaism doesn't posit any belief in God. So where the hell is their faith? Right? This has nothing to do with faith. So it's this left-wing activism that draw, drew the shooting suspect to the address where the synagogue met. Right? So he fulminated online against Hias, the Jewish refugee settlement agency. So he doesn't want more refugees settled in the United States. So you affiliate yourself with Hias. Right, you are going to draw down the ire of those who don't want more refugees. So the congregation was listed on Hyas's website as a participant in a national refugee Shabbat, which wove concern for migrants into Shabbat worship. I am a man of such lofty moral principles. Like, I'm a man who's not afraid to stand up for right and wrong. I will tell you right now, I would not attend a synagogue holding a national refugee Shabbat unless there are a lot of attractive women there. But other than that, like unless there are like uh, beautiful women there, I, I, w- I wouldn't go there for a national refugee Shabbat, right? You're only asking for trouble, all right? 
But uh, apparently the attack has only emboldened Dora Hadash members. Oh, man. Just trying to pull up the chat here. It's only emboldened these guys in their left-wing activism. They were soon organizing what became a separate group. Squirrel Hill stands against gun violence, advocating for gun safety legislation. I know someone who talks about gun rights much. Right? I don't have you know, strong opinions. I, I generally stand with uh, gun rights, but uh, you know, I recognize that there are probably some good challenges to that. So they've redoubled their support for immigrants, for refugees, and for helpers such as Hayas. Right? Congregation sponsored a refugee family originally from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and they've taken a strong stand against rising anti-Semitism and white supremacy. So none of these things are going to reduce violence against Jews, I would suspect. So a chair for this Reconstructionist Jewish group says, I think advocacy, meaning left-wing advocacy, has been a huge part of our healing. Isn't, advocacy isn't just about making myself feel better. It's about trying to move the needle so this doesn't happen to everyone else. Best way to move the needle, get security. There are a lot of people who are seeking some way to help that the world is a more compassionate place. Well, more compassionate for whom, all right? If you set up security, right, it'll be a more compassionate place for those who are benefited by that security. I mean, bringing in refugees, right, is uh, compassionate for the refugees, but it's frequently anti-compassionate for the Americans that they hurt. Right? You might want to watch the new three-part Boston Marathon bombing on Netflix to reacquaint yourself with what refugees can do. These two children of refugees from Chechnya wreaked absolute havoc on Boston, shut down the city. So if this attack in Pittsburgh only emboldened left-wing Jews, they can be sure there will be more dramatic conflicts of interest in the future. When conflicts of interest become sufficiently dramatic, they tend to tip into violence. Then we have a reform rabbi writing in the New York Times. His uh, synagogue was hit with a Molotov cocktail attack. So we had a plan of action in place. American Jewish institutions have developed rapid response playbooks to address concrete terror threats, best practices. We've invested in security. We've added cameras, panic buttons, shatterproof film. All right, these are all good ideas. These are concrete steps to make yourself safer. So when hate feels insurmountable and unpredictable, we have to shrink the problem. Even if we are treading a shaky path, we have to search for tiny patches of firm ground. So yeah, just doing something will usually reduce anxiety. So doing something that's effective, all right, that's, <laughs> that's going to be something that's more aligned with reality, all right? That's a more lasting way to approach these dramatic conflicts of interest that spiral into violence. Together with neighboring rabbis, we educated our local towns to call us when there is an anti-Semitic incident so we can strategize with them about the right response. Some of our local Christmas tree lightings now include a Jewish presence. This past year, we used the Molotov cocktail attack to talk about our collective fear and the need to bring light. In April, when we realized that Passover ended over at Ramadan, over Ramadan, we broke bread with a local Turkish community. That night in our sanctuary, a mixed group of Muslims and Jews gathered around one of our Torah scrolls and discussed the many things our fa faiths shared. Our wider Jewish community has reached across religious and racial lines to work towards social justice issues like bringing rent control to neighboring Montclair to build bonds and trusts. We are working with schools to evaluate their Holocaust curriculums. 
We have worked to allow students to understand the connection between the hatred of the Nazis and the hatred today, not just against Jews, but against all who experience bigotry. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that uh, Holocaust education does not make people better, right? It's not going to minimize the chance of future attacks. You get attacks when there are dramatic conflicts of interest between groups. As long as people have strong in-groups identity, they are going to have negative feelings about out-groups, whether those out-groups are Jews, Christians, Americans, white people, Russians, black people, gays, Muslims, right? Having antipathy towards out-groups is not always irrational, right? You have a strong in-group identity. You will likely have varying degrees of hostility towards out-groups. There are rare exceptions, such as like Mennonite Christians, right? The stronger your Mennonite Christian identity, right, it doesn't seem to be accompanied by an increase in hostility towards out-groups. But for almost all in-group identities, the stronger your in-group identity, the more hostility you'll have towards out-groups when you have dramatic conflicts of interest and people are living in proximity to each other, you will frequently have violence. Now you're probably wondering, what does Chuck Johnson have to say about Ali Alexander? So there was this event that was being hosted. I think Teal showed up. I know Jeff ran it, Jeff Kesey ran it, or some version of it, or maybe it was ran around him, but it was in Cleveland. Honestly, I'm not a big party person in general, you know, so I'm much more like kind of introverted in that way. So like I didn't make the deplorable. I'm not terribly interested in like large groups of people in general. It's like not my thing. I prefer the more intimate dinner party. Um, you know, my, my brother jokes with me that like, you know, Jesus had 12 disciples and if he'd only had 10, you know, one of them betrayed him and the other one, you know, denied him. So like keep the circle tight, you know? Um, so that's always been how I've conducted myself personally, but it is interesting. Like I've been thinking about it in the last few, few years. What was the point of all that? Was it just to like see who would gawk or who would look or who would whatever? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot in the last few years and, um, you know, was it just innocuous homosexualness? I don't know, you know, well, I, but I will tell you, I will I tell you either. that. But, but, but I will tell you that the, the so thing connected. He's like, well, so he's Ali is Emirati. by the Mercers. He's funded by, yeah. Yeah. If you understand that Ali figure, right? The Emiratis used George Nader, who was, a, who was a child molester, convicted child molester. And there's a sort of use of the sort of criminal world by, the, by some elements within the Arab world as basically emissaries, people that will do anything, you know, for them. Yeah. And Ali, personally, you know, I, I haven't written what I want to say. I mean, I've written what I want to say about Ali, but I'm kind of too cowardly to publish it, to be honest. Um, and what has been interesting to me was, so I was being attacked by the Israelis rather aggressively online and elsewhere. And Ali showed up out of nowhere, offered to be my PR person for free. And given that he was, you know, likely homosexual, we never really brought it up because, you know, I am, I have the opposite problem of homosexuality where I have too many women in my life, which is frankly. So, um, and, uh, and so, you know, he showed up, was extremely helpful. He was sort of, you know, gay, black, Arab person here to help me. And he helped me, <laughs> you know, rather like effortlessly. He like rebutted some of the media inquiries that were all like, you know, the typical, you know, Israeli, you know, NBC news, whatever nonsense they were attacking me. And I later learned that the reason the Israelis were attacking me was they were concerned about efforts I was making in the genetic space. And involvement that I was getting the U.S. Uh, you know, Congress involved with, and I sued, by the way, all the way up to the Supreme Court over the defamation in the Huffington Post. I even met with the Huffington Post people about the defamation. They were so shocked by what I was telling them, shock, 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 that the Indian head of Verizon Media sold Huffington Post for a dollar to BuzzFeed. Uh, so just and BuzzFeed, of course, is where Mike Cernovich used to leak all of his material, right? Uh, so there's this sort of, um, shall we call it like, there's these sort of people who are perverts or disgusting or eccentrics or weirdos or whatever that have all these connections to foreign intelligence and oligarchs who are backed by foreign intelligence. So that there's a lot of rumors about Robert Mercer having connections with the Russians, certainly his connections with the sort of Hong Kong Chinese. And so, um, and of course, you know, Rebecca Mercer, his daughter was a major backer of Army Hammer's, you know, career early on. 
Um, so there's these sort of like uh, oligarch types. And what they do is they have consiglieries or they have fixers or they have people that, that are there on the series as well. And Ali had basically positioned himself in that, in that territory. So remarkably well-connected, remarkably helpful, remarkably relational. You know, I remember him, he was the first person to call me on my birthday one year. I'd never told him my birthday, right? Very kind of strange kind of things like that. And, uh, and, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know what I think about the allegations that are promulgated against him. So for one, like, I'm not excusing this, okay? Like, again, I'm not excusing this. I'm not excusing this. I'm not defending it. Having been targeted by the homosexual parts of the Republican Party, the groomer right, if you will, I've written about this myself, my own experience with Thor Halverson, who runs a quote-unquote human rights outfit. So I'm not defending this, but I am saying that there is a certain person who is a young gay man or gay curious man who um, both wants to be selected um, and is sort of like also a participant in this kind of system, if you will. And uh, this gives their sort of sexual identity issues a form of meaning as well. And um, I've seen this time and time again. I mean, I'm not, again, not defending it. It just is a thing. And you run in, you, you also run into this when you get some notoriety and you're a heterosexual man where like there will be the daughter of a congressman who will like be absurdly friendly with you when you are, you know, when she's 19 and you're 31 or whatever, 32, right? And there's, there's a lot of that that goes on, right? Um, particularly when you're perceived as having status or influence or power. And I could imagine a 15-year-old, you know, sublimated gay boy, right, who sees Ali Alexander and sees him with the Robert Mercers or the Jack Dorseys of the world and intuits quite rightly that he's a powerful person, right, and wants in on that, right? Um, he may not even know it on a conscious level, right? He may just be sort of attracted to it in the way that when you're young, you just kind of know that you're attracted to this or attracted to that, and you don't even really know where these desires come from in the first place. Now, I think what's indefensible on Ali's part is sort of taking advantage of those people, right? And sort of like harming them in some way. Um, but I think that too is a big part of politics, which is in and of itself somewhat exploitative, you know? And maybe that's kind of true of the tech industry. I mean, Heath Roboy has had a number of dalliances with people who work for him, right? Um, I mean, we can point to many examples of people who carried on affairs with people who worked for them over the years. And again, I'm not you know, condoning that, but I'm not really condemning it either. I mean, my mother worked for my father before they were married, okay? Like, I've always taken the Me Too issue somewhat personally in that, in that regard. So, you know, I, human beings will meet each other. There'll be sort of things that are not exactly on the up and up. And this is just, I think, part of human nature is to sort of see these kind of things. Now, what I find interesting here is, one, I know that Milo collects blackmail on people, okay? He's very open about that. He's talked about that. He's threatened people. He's threatened to destroy them, harm them in different ways. Okay, fine. He's also an alien, you know, under an O-1 visa, which is the Einstein visa, quote-unquote, which is for an alien of exceptional ability. What exceptional ability does he have? Very unclear. Well, he does have an exceptional ability. I mean, he has exceptional abilities, but they're not exactly toxic. What Yes, they're exceptionally toxic, perhaps. But I, I don't think that's <laughs> exactly... Yes. So, so then there's the question of, like, this information was saved up for quite a number of years to be deployed seven years later, right? And there's no criminal filings. There's no... There are text messages, and that's gross. Like, okay. But people text a lot of things in all kinds of states. People's text messages get stolen. They get rearranged. They get turned into black propaganda. They get... I mean, you know, show me the man's cell phone and I'll show you the crime, right? I mean, there's lots of examples of this that one could do. Well, it should be noted that he has not denied any of these allegations. He has not denied it, so he, and he has apologized for it, which I think is... If you have an allegation like this, your first instinct and a correct instinct is to deny it, um, just outright deny it. Which he, well, he, didn't, he didn't deny it. He apologized for text messages in general. Yes. And in particular, he said that there are many instances of things being manufactured or made up. I mean, he, he did make that clear. Now, again, I'm not defending him. He's not a friend of mine. I've maybe met him twice in real life. And just to be clear about this, I did warn the FBI about him many years ago. So just, I'll get into that sort of side plot in a second. Um, I told Ali many years ago, he felt he was being targeted by foreign intelligence in DC. And he freaked out. I've never seen somebody more scared in my life. Like he was, uh, you know, he, we FaceTimed, he was like sweating. He was very disturbed, like he'd been chased or something. And I told him to go to the FBI. He said that he would. He, he, I later found out that he did not go to the FBI in any meaningful way. And then during the whole January 6th matter, the FBI asked me about Ali 
I explained some of the stuff I told you guys here. I've explained other things that I sort of saw and things around him. The FBI set a meeting to come to go meet me down in uh, Waco, Texas. At the time, I was living in the Woodlands, Texas. I drove there, was ready for the meet, and then the FBI agent, who was not the main FBI agent, I was supposed to, you know, I knew, canceled the, the meeting at like the eleventh hour. What I've been told is that Ali has been extremely helpful in identifying a lot of these foreign intelligence networks to the FBI uh, over the last, basically since January 6th, that he's basically gone informant. So therefore, the attacks on Ali, you know, by a Marjorie, by a Milo Yiannopoulos, in my estimation, they are using a true thing, a disgusting true thing, for that matter, maybe even a criminal true thing, as a means of shutting him up and taking him out of the conversation uh, because they fear other things that he might have written or said or done. Yeah, so this information about Ali Alexander was known for many, many years. So why exactly was it deployed now? Sure, there's some gold in the things that uh, Chuck Johnson just had to say. It's hard to disentangle, you know, the, the, what's true and what's invalid from what he's having to say. So Orthodox Jew, I keep Shawarnagia. That means I don't touch people of the opposite gender unless I am directly related to them through blood or marriage. I've given a lot of thought to this, and the answer is based off of my own comfort level. This isn't something that I've discussed with a rabbinic authority, just for clarification. If a stranger approached me and offered their hand to shake, I would make that decision based off of their physical appearance. So is it possible that they could be on day one or transition or even month one of transition? Sure, but unless they told me up front, I wouldn't necessarily know that, and I'm not comfortable asking somebody that just when they offer me their hand to shake. But let's say I met somebody like Dylan. The entire world knows that she is a trans woman. I would shake her hand, and if she's the huggy type, I would embrace her. Am I allowed to touch a trans woman? Hi, my name is Miriam. I'm an Orthodox Jew, and I share what my life looks like. As an Orthodox Jew, I keep Shawarnagia. That means I don't touch people of the opposite gender. Wow, I hadn't thought about that angle of Orthodox Judaism uh, shaking hands with, say, someone who transitioned to the opposite sex. It's just kind of mind-blowing mind trying to get my head around it, and I don't know what to say. But one thing I do know what to say is commentary on Tennis Prager. So you will like this, I think. I th you know, Because I think everything through. I think, are they happy? Are they happy? Are they happy? And my theory is they're content. But I'm not sure they're happy. Talking about skin, they're not the same. My dogs are content, but it's a bit it's a bit odd to say they're happy. If you don't know you're happy, you're not happy. But they're very content. Cows grazing are content. Mm -hmm. I'm not comparing Scandinavians to cows. <laughs> I'm merely noting that contentment is not the, the same as happiness. And I am convinced that the reason they're constantly voted happiest, or a big reason, is that they they are the model for the people who do these polls for the UN or for whatever think tank it is because they're so filled with big government taking care of people. The mm -hmm. assumption is among the both liberals and leftists, in this case they think similarly, most cases they don't, they, they just vote similarly, that if the government takes care of you, you'll be happy. They're projecting their view of what makes a human happy, whereas there's no comparison in the happiness of people who take care of themselves and who are taken care of. Right. Isn't the nightmare of every human being who gets older, I don't want to be dependent upon others? So why is that the dream of every progressive on earth? I want to be taken care of. You want to be taken care of. It's the nightmare of people being taken care of. Right. So I want to ask, to you, what is the difference between happiness and contentment? And what do you think that's why creates I, I, each? That, that's why I used... Contentment is there. You don't, you don't have any serious problems. Right. Right. And, and I do have a motto. If nothing's horrific, life is terrific. That, that is true. However... Okay, so is it uh, is it really that uh, 
the the happiness ratings are rigged to align with uh, the left wing elite's understanding of happiness. I'm highly skeptical. So th there should be objective statistics that uh, reliably predict happiness, such as um, family stability, uh, low rates of, of crime, uh, low rates of, uh, say, suicide, uh, many opportunities for people to join together, strong in-group identity. And uh, I don't think that uh, Scandinavian happiness is, is just uh, rigged. I think at least until they were invaded by you know high levels of immigration, that these were fairly cohesive, coherent, high-trust societies. People in cohesive, coherent, high-trust societies tend to be happy. And I think that's what's going on with Japan, with Australia, with the Scandinavian countries. You have here overwhelmingly coherent, cohesive societies with high levels of social trust. As social trust declines in a society like it has dramatically in the United States over the past 60 years, then happiness goes down. But this idea that uh, happiness levels are related to you know, how much you do for yourself versus how much you do for the government, like why exactly are people happier having to uh, purchase private insurance and then uh, purchase you know, new private insurance when they change jobs uh, when they live in fear of some medical procedure that will bankrupt them, uh, how exactly does that make you know, make people happier? Right? These are countries that have far lower levels of government spending per GDP than the United States. Somalia, Turkmenistan, Haiti, Venezuela, Sudan, Iran, Equatorial Guinea, Bangladesh, Ethiopia, Yemen, Guinea, Nigeria. Right? Do you really want United States to be more like those countries where people apparently are just so happy because they have you know such low levels of you know government intervention in their lives. I, I thought this was a particularly weak argument by Dennis. You need more than Good that. Motto. It is a great motto. Oh my God! Hey, Sean, play the jingle, will you? If nothing's horrific, life is to yes. I came up with this phrase, and some great listener made it into a jingle. Oh my God! Contact my friends, friends. at uh, Billy and he Jerry do this. Plumbing and sponsors, which I. Okay. committed to always telling the truth to the best of my human ability when i receive scripts from sponsors which i have all of my life basically if there's look truth is one value among many values right sometimes you tell white lies to save other people's feelings right it's not like free speech or truth or courage or kindness or compassion that these are just the you know ultimate value against which all other values must bow Right? Values always exist in a constellation in competition with each other. Something in there that isn't true, and there almost always is. I'll give one example. I, I omit it. So, for example, almost every script that I have to read says, so you contact my friends, friends. at uh, Billy and he Jerry Plumbing, and I, but they're not my friends. I don't say it. I have, I have learned from you hugely in that regard. With the adver I mean, in so many yes. other ways, but with no, regard no, to ad right. advertising and omitting things that are not I always get true. a kick out of that. By the way, tangent again, this is a fun one. So not only do I not say it because it's not honest, I'm not sure it's effective. Right. Because if I say contact... Nobody makes a jingle for Luke should be based on a Richard Spencer. I've had jingles made for me. I just happen to prefer the, the opening music that uh, is available on YouTube, uh, royalty-free. So I, I used a jingle that someone else created uh, years ago on the show.
attack my friends. Yes, it's then, a nepotism. Well, well not, nepot- not only that, maybe people think, oh, the only reason he's well, endorsing right. them That's is because I mean. they're his friends. That's what I oh, mean. Oh, yeah, the nepotism. Okay, right. fair enough. Yes. <laughs> Why is that an effective line? You know, on on this point... <laughs> if a woman asks me if she looks fat, do I tell a white lie? Uh, probably, usually, I would tell her a white lie. There may be occasions when I don't. <laughs> That's just if I wanted to break up with me. Of honesty, and again, you're so right that this is just so Dennis and Julie to go off an exit ramp and come back on. But this is just so inspiring. Are you not inspired? Are you not inspired by this commitment to honesty here, with regard to his sponsors? It is. It is so important. This is something I've really learned, especially in the past year. If you want to live an honest life, you have to live an honest life in every arena. Uh, no. All right. You may very well have a job that forces you to say things that are not fully honest, right? There are a lot of jobs force you to do that if you want to be employed in that profession or if you want to work for a particular boss. When you have a job, when you work for someone, you are a tool, an instrument of that boss. So yeah, if the violation of your personal ethics is just too dramatic, then you should get another job. But Let's say you're a free market economist, but and, and this happened to a friend of mine, free market economist, but the only job she could get was for a trade group that was pushing for subsidies. So she disagreed with the trade group pushing for subsidies, but she needed a job, and this was the job that was available as the job that was most con- convenient for her schedule and for, for what she needed. And she wasn't setting the policies of this trade group. She was simply a tool, an instrument of the trade group. So... If your job, you know, goes against what you believe, say, with regard to free market economics or with regard to litigation or with regard to this or that, but you're only an instrument, you're only a tool, you're only a paper pusher, then it's not ideal, but it's reality, right? You shouldn't, you shouldn't destroy your life, the life of people who care about you, the lives of your family, because you disagree with, say, the ideological direction of you know, the particular group that you work for. Every single one. I think I said on this podcast that I have... How many 23-year-olds would say that? <laughs> uh, I'm not embarrassing you. I'm no, just I pointing out... Compromising your core principles for a job you think you need is a life that works. Well, guess what should be a core principle? Uh, paying your bills, right? saving money, supporting your family. So yeah, if supporting your family requires that even though you're a free market economist you are a paper pusher for some trade group, then yeah, I say you do it. Now, there are some principles that you should not compromise on, but you have to have a sense of what's the upshot. If it makes absolutely no difference to whether or not you work for this trade group or someone else does, it makes no difference for the wider society, then why should you not not go to work for them? Or you work for Coca-Cola, okay? Most people drinking Coke with all the sugar in it is a bad choice. But for some people, it's fine, right? They're active. They burn it off. It's fine. For most people, it's a bad choice. I I don't think you're a bad guy if you go to work for Coca-Cola. Okay, so many foods that are, like, if you work for a company that sells rice, right? Rice is effectively as bad for you as Coca-Cola. Like, rice is probably worse for you than a candy bar because at least a candy bar has fat in it. So you go to work for a supermarket that sells rice or a company that sells rice, right? That's horrible for people. Rice is just a fast-burning carbohydrate that uh, will will elevate your your blood sugar. Absolutely poison for your body. But I I wouldn't tell someone, oh, you shouldn't go to work for a supermarket that sells food that's unhealthy for people. That's insane, 
right? If you have a delusional understanding of the effect uh, of your work, then I would say you'd be better at place getting in touch with reality. So your principle may be that uh, most people should not drink Coca-Cola. Your principle may be that most people should not uh, eat uh, complex or simple carbohydrates in the amounts that they do. But uh, does that mean then you can't work for certain restaurants, certain supermarket chains or all supermarket chains that you can't work for, you know, food companies? If you're an accountant, right, does that mean that you can't do accounting work for a Coca-Cola or an affiliate or a supermarket or some store that sells some food and some drink that is bad for people? Uh, many people drink and drive and then kill people. Does that mean you can't work for a brewery? Uh, I don't know. I, th I think I'd work for a brewery and I, I don't like alcohol. I don't like the effect that alcohol has on people, but I know that some people use alcohol responsibly and some people use alcohol irresponsibly. Some people gamble responsibly. I don't think I would work for a gambling company. I'd have to be in a particularly desperate position, but it seems from what I've read about a third of people who gamble, it has a noticeable detrimental effect on, on their life. But a third of people who drink, it doesn't have a noticeable detrimental effect on their life. It's more like 10%. So you have to be a little bit more sophisticated about how important is it, you know, whether or not I go to work for this company, what effect will it have on the wider society? What effect will it have on me? Because you can go to work for a, a group, an organization, a business that is aligned with your values, but it just so happens to be an absolutely toxic workplace. So I've gotten, you know, various feedback on what it's like to work for Dennis Prager. So some people thought it was a hellish experience and they ended up hating Dennis Prager. Uh, other people thought it was a good experience and other people thought it was just like an another job for what that's worth. Compromising your core principles for a job you think you need is a life that works. So as you go through the day, you will be constantly you know, choosing to uphold one principle over another right it's not like all your principles are just inviolable right you have to constantly weigh them against competing principles this young woman could have been a nurse she could have been a teacher and said she chose to be a shell she's not a shell right she's thoughtful and she has some important things to say would luke promote lgbt for a paycheck if it was funny yeah if it was funny like humor for me is a value if you do something that is funny as right then there's a time and a place for that. There's a time and a place for taking the attitude, LOL, nothing matters. Not as a guiding principle for your life, but there's a time and a place. Luke's diet consists mostly of supplements. Would Luke make pornographic movies for a paycheck? No, I wouldn't currently. But if, I, if it was a choice between, say, my family starving, if it was like some extreme case between me starving or my family starving, then yeah, I would. A 43-year-old said that, we would think it's admirable and we'd move on. That you think about that is why you're you. Oh, I think about it all the time. I know, I'll, I know. I'll give you two examples. And, and let's uh, welcome uh, Pigger to the show. Pigger, what's going on, bro? Sometimes you feel like a nut. Sometimes you don't. Mounds got nuts. Wait, no. Almond Joyce got nuts. Mounds don't. That's Thank beautiful. You. That's important too. People Thank need to know that. I mean, a lot of good things right. go into Almond Joy. It's not just a bad thing. Right. So you think to yourself, hey, look, look, I'm, I'm uh, 
I'm, I'm Luke Ford, and I got this great idea that, uh, you know, sometimes you're evil, sometimes you're good, and, you know, but really, Almond Joys and Mounds have, both have coconuts, and they're both nuts. So true. That's all I got. So true. That's all I got, man. That's all you got, but it's 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 powerful, bro. It's powerful. Yeah, something to think about. Uh, maybe next week I'll come up with something better. Well, what about moral compromises that you've made in the workplace? Have you ever like worked for an organization or a a store that you disagreed with, but you needed to do it for the paycheck? Well, you're 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 asking me to go into my memory banks, and that's kind of been erased. Uh, I have a uh, right. mental problem, but right. uh, I would say no. I've been truthful and honest about all my business dealings. That's all I, I would okay. I would say about that. And uh, how's, the, anyway, how's have, the scene? How's the scene in Israel? Like uh, a lot of protests there a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I guess that's uh, calmed down. I, I didn't really uh, get involved with that. It wasn't my uh, time to protest. I was about the the Gushka Tief thing uh, 20 years ago, and now it's their turn to uh, to worry about stuff, and our okay. turn to laugh at them. Okay. And you said, uh, by the way, what were you going to say before I interrupted you? By the way, have a good week. Ah, wait. <laughs> you had a comment that uh, I said something that was irreligious oh, when no, I said, man. Okay. "You don't want me on your show, dude. I got nothing, man." No, I, I think you're underestimating what you bring to the show, bro. This is like this is like right. a pro pigger comment. So you said something. I just wanted to sing that song. That's all you want to do. Song, well, right? then I want to respect your wishes. Sometimes bro. you feel like a nut. Sometimes you don't. <laughs> hmm. It's a good song, Powerful. right? Powerful, man. I want yeah. to respect Powerful you and your stuff. wishes. This is a place so, of respect. So when you're espousing your, actually, your uh, idea is uh, the Jewish idea of of uh, of uh, midot, yeah. right? So, like, say if you're um, uh, you have a bloodlust, you want to you want to you you want to see a lot of uh, blood. So mm -hmm. the rabbis say you should be a butcher. Yeah. So it's a mida. It's not that your your bloodlust is evil. It just needs to be funneled in a in a good way. Yeah, and also, so sorry, did you have a further point? Yeah, that's where I think you go wrong. It's like you, you kind of give the idea is like. Well, sometimes you feel like a murderer, and sometimes you feel like a butcher. Like, no, it's, it's like the mean does. It's like you always feel bloodlust, but it depends on what you do with that bloodlust. Well, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. I don't think it contradicts anything I say. I mean, if you got bloodlust, you know, go join the U.S. military or the, Isra the yeah, Israeli you, military as well. You give, you give the impression that you're saying that, uh, you know, sometimes you, you, you are the murderer. Sometimes you're the butcher. Oh. I, I, what I say is sometimes you'll be the concentration camp guard. That in certain circumstances, right. you, will, there you, go. you will enforce you know, strictures against outgroups because that's what your in-group demands of you. So it's not like you know, one group in the world is just righteous and one group in the world is just victims. And you know, one group is just inherently evil. It depends on the circumstance. So if, you, if you know, Israel needed to call up you know, its reserves and part of the action of those reserves was to say isolate certain you know west bank communities like you would need to do that as a member of the the israeli in group uh 
uh, what do you mean by isolate? I mean, put them in I, concentration I no, I, camps I, I, and... Uh, yeah, yeah, put them in, you might need to put them in prisons, all right? So, or if, if, yeah, uh, you, if you're You're making war, the argument that, you know, some, sometimes the, the Israeli will be the Nazi. And he'll uh, establish uh, concentration camps and, uh, and, and murder a bunch of Palestinians. I just yeah. don't. Uh, I, th I, th I think you're taking a, a concept that that can work really well if if you if you finagle it right, but if you 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 t you, you take it uh, to a place where it's not meant to go. Well, it it, uh, it depends on the, the circumstance. So if Israel needed to use its nuclear weapons, all right, and Israel apparently is threatened, you know, various countries that it will use nuclear weapons if its survival is is at at, at stake. Then that would, you know, that could could mean Israel wiping out you know, millions of of innocent people from from the earth to, you know, try to deter uh, threats to its own survival. And so, to the Nazis thought that they were fighting for their own survival in trying to rid the world of Jews, or at least trying to rid Jews from Europe. And sorry, man. <laughs> You, you, you gotta you gotta admit there's, there's a difference between um the butcher example and the nazi, nazi example like yes. the nazis like the nazi the nazi was evil and 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 the butcher ex example is that bloodlust is 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 in between but it, it depends if you, if you are a uh murderer or or you you're a uh, butcher yeah, so I, I, it's I not that it's not having an army that makes you evil. It wasn't that the Nazis having an army and having the power made them evil. It's what they did with the army. No, I, so, I absolutely so yes. agree. But you're looking at it through a moral lens, which is appropriate. And if I were to look at this through a moral lens, I would take that uh, that position as well. But I don't primarily base this show on a moral lens. I don't primarily base it on any particular. Uh, hero system. I'm just pointing out that in life, various forms of life compete with each other. Now, if you take a leap of faith to some transcend transcendent moral code, then you can make the case that this action is good and this action is evil. But absent that leap of faith to a transcendent moral code, then all you have are different forms of life competing for survival. Well, fine. Uh, absent a lot of things, lots of different things. Happen, you know. Absent my shoes, I, I walk barefoot. So what? We have a moral code, and that's what we're supposed to live by as Jews. And yeah, I don't, but I don't most even, of my audience is your point. Yeah, most of my that's, audience that's, isn't Jewish, so you, I'm not you imposing. Your your idea has a Jewish um, uh, background to it. It's the the idea of midot, but you took it to a secular place. And and once you cr cross that line, it's no longer a, a Jewish idea. That's correct. I'm not just speaking to a Jewish audience. If if I'm speaking to someone who shares a a moral code with me, then I can invoke the moral code. But most of my audience doesn't share my moral code, so I try to speak in a way that anyone can relate to, whether they're a believing Jew or if they're an atheist or if they're um, you know a Hindu. I, I try to speak in both universal and particular terms. So sometimes I'll transition from a particular perspective based on, you know, God-based ethics as revealed in the Torah to other times I'll just talk in terms of, you know, just brute force where the strong take what they want and the weak endure what they must. I think uh, you need to be able to relate to people, you know, who are, who are different from you.
so when you're in the synagogue, you think that uh, you go by the, the idea of midot, and when you go, and when you talk to secular people, you go by the idea of uh, might makes right. Well, it depends what will that secular person relate to. So some people are, you know, some people just very evolutionary, like group selection, uh, even some plenty of secular Jews, you know, they really relate to the idea of, you know, Darwinian group selection. That's kind of the prism through which they see the world. And I will try to relate to people on that level. If they're Christians, I may relate to them on the basis of a shared scripture that we have, the Hebrew Bible. We, we have that in common. And so we have some, you know, common perspectives and we, we have a common scripture that we can relate to. If I'm talking to Orthodox Jews, then we accept that uh, the Torah is divine. And so then we have a common moral framework. If I'm talking to uh, Reform or conservative Jews, then they don't believe that the Torah is divine. And so you have to try to find you know, some common ground depending on your audience. So I'm going to change what I say to most effectively relate to the person that I'm talking to. So depending on who they well, are, I'm going to adjust to fit in with where they're at. You're not, you're not trying to uh, be on their level to understand the idea of midot. You're changing your, your philosophy into might makes right in order to fit in. And that's, that's anti-Jewish. That's I'm not changing my philosophy. I'm speaking to people where they're at. So if, if they don't share... Um, yeah, but might, might makes right of... is completely anti-Torah. Might makes right is completely anti... Yeah, because it's an argument that what is, what is mighty is, is right. But most of my audience does not subscribe to Torah. So I want to talk to people who don't subscribe to talk Torah as well as people who do subscribe to Torah. I want both. You, 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 but you don't change a, a, a huge uh, 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 a Torah belief in order to speak to the goyim. You're a Jew now. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to laugh. No, it's fine. I, 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 I'm, also, I'm also a fake Jew. You know, I'm only ha uh, half a Jew, so... Well, I, I don't um, think I ever actually argue that might makes right. I argue that might, that the mighty take what they want, that that's just the reality. It's not something that I'm promoting as right. I don't think I've ever promoted that, you know, mass slaughter is right. I just pr point out that when people have the ability to do whatever they want, you know, they do whatever they want. And it's only when they are met with equal force or greater force that they temper their agenda. That's the reality. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying that's how the world works. All right. Well, um, fair enough. It, it gets a little bit uh, to a point where it, it gets too refined for me. Then, <laughs> if you're gonna, if you if you're not going to make it simple enough for me to uh, grasp, then then what am I supposed to do? You know, I, I need well, things to be simple. Anyway, anyway, this would be a good point. This is what I missed about your show, um, that this would be a good point where two or three or four other people would join in on yeah. their idea yeah. of what this whole thing would be, you know? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. especially, it, and, and I, like, I, re, I, I regret that I'm not that second person that can bring the third person over, you know? Like, you need that, that other guy that can spark some more people to come over and start uh, and start this conversation. Yes, I, I do. Like me on my own is just nothing compared to the the group shows that we used to do.
I mean, there's no way around that. Me on my own is like a one out of 10 compared to many of the 10 out of 10 experiences that we used to enjoy. All right. So I'm, don't take offense. Uh, I forget names. But who, who always calls in? I, I actually like when he calls in. Elliot. Elliot. Elliot, call in now. What do you think about uh, me, Dot? You could be the third guy. Yeah. Elliot, and then we can, lines. and then we, and then we get get uh, uh, glib med, glib, glib uh, medley in. Yeah, yeah. I these every are, every time these, I do a show, these I are guys send with out, about them. Yeah, every time I do a show, I send out invites to about twelve people. Now, most of them don't show up, but I really do try to bring people onto my show, unless I believe that it will be bad for them. So, most people who want to come on the show. I don't have on my show because I believe it will be bad for them. What do you mean bad for them in what way? They will say things that will hurt their life. It will damage their family, their friends, their, their life prospects. They will regret it that they don't have well, self-discipline. You, you don't care about my family? Is that what you're saying? No, I believe that you have enough <laughs> uh, self-control to not say things on the show that are going to devastate your family. I, I got uh, kicked off of YouTube, so obviously I don't have uh, the wherewithal uh, when it comes to all that. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, I, ho I hope the best for you. Uh, how about this? Um, maybe uh, not be. Maybe since you already lowered your standards with me, go even lower. And build yourself <laughs> up from there. Like, like go back to OV, you know, kind of stuff. Or he's desperate to talk to people now. Um, go, like, just open it up to the, the bottom of the barrel and build yourself up uh, from that point. And yeah, but we'll is, it, is it moral to, uh, to build myself up on other people's misery? Like, some of these people... No, they like, love it. Yeah. They would love it. I really think that the, you want to start again where you were with um, God. Um, Kevin Michael Grace. There, yeah. I re remembered the name. You know, he was the he was the he was the top. He was the pinnacle. But you had to even you, you know you had to build your way up to get get to him. So the the uh, the building crumbled, and now you have to rebuild from the from the ground up. I think you have to open up. Uh, you just, you just, you know, at the last half hour of every show, just say, "Hey, here's my link. Anybody can come in. Anything that, that, that wants to say anything, and just see what happens." That's my uh, suggestion. Yeah, yeah. But w w what do you think about the idea that it could be, you know, really dangerous for m many, many of these? people like it doesn't necessarily bring out the best it'll be dangerous for your youtube career that's for sure and uh, that'll shorten your youtube career um it, dangerous for other people we let people be men you know like I, i'm a man i, I make my own decisions what, what are you going to do to them you, you you think too high of yourself what you can influence other people so much um, no it has nothing to do with me influencing them it is ha has to do with they can't handle doing live streams and acting in their own best interests. Because doing a live stream tends to bring out the worst in people. 
People have an exaggerated sense of their own importance. They tend to blurt out things that they wouldn't say face to face. They tend to be attracted to particularly dark uh, subject matters, and they tend to get really attention-seeking and extreme. Um, these people were were oh look we got all oh, whoa we got yeah, Ricardo bless Ricardo the man dude I Taker I feel your I feel felt your loneliness I had to come on and say hello he's certainly suffering <laughs> I know I know suffering under the Luke, Luke tormenting us with like you know he could just drop the link in the chat and like every you know the the flood of Spurgs would be you know I mean. You know, there'd be a lot of a lot of clean misses. There's definitely someone lurking out there, another mentally ill person that provides uh, a ton of entertainment, like a, like a Gandalf. Like, where's Gandalf at? G- Gandalf would join, you know, immediately. Yeah, he'd he'd be good for a while to build <laughs> off of. <laughs> But, but uh, Ricardo, what if it turned out to not be in the person's best interest? Like, uh, you know, one person who I used to have on regularly on the show, they ended up getting fired from a very prestigious position, not for anything they said on my show, but because it led them to broadcast all sorts of thoughts that got them in trouble. Well, I mean, I think that's fair, but that doesn't mean, like, you know, the first couple times you meet somebody, I mean, there's no, you have no idea. Like, like, we provide them a platform that I, this platform's not that big. You know, I don't think it's that big. So, yeah. wait, I just encourage it's not my responsibility. Is that what you're saying, uh, Ricardo? Uh, like I would say, with like new people, I mean, I do think there's like a certain level of like, I can imagine, like, after repeated interactions, like, I imagine Norbin's not on your mailing list, right? I've actually sent him a bunch of invites in the past uh, three weeks. He hasn't shown up. Okay. <laughs> well, there, there's you go. <laughs> I guess he doesn't have much to lose. <laughs> um, yeah, I was on Norvin's the other day. He asked, uh, he's been sending me invites. And, yeah, me uh, too. Me too. I talked to Norvin like a, like two months ago. We time. talked about that tablet article about Eric Kaufman and, uh, you know, God forbid the Asians out competing the Jews, which uh, is something I've been mentioning for quite a while. Well, David's always right. Did uh, Norvin is Norvin still? He told me he's become eugenics obsessed. So, I, who knows? He's like, yeah, I mean, it looks like his numbers are back to uh, you know about the pre Luke Ford days. Yeah, I would say. Well, he's having all these people on, so at least he's ho- hosting uh, hangouts. Everyone's numbers are down, so, but, uh, you know, you can still find people to talk about these things, because, uh, or whatever you're interested in. I've been teaming up with John Wolf. We got some, uh, you know, like dramas. I did a presentation on uh, the dangers of the e-personality. I even uh, threw in Luke an honorable mention on uh you know some new circles nice have you made it just see i I see ricardo and i see duvid together on the on the luke forge show and i just want to cry i just (laughs) 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 this brings back so many great memories oh my gosh i mean it's been five years it's been five years that 
You guys should never have left one another. Oh, well, you can blame your people, dude. Your people. I didn't go anywhere. You know, like uh, me and Luke have been, you know, grinding it out. So, uh, you know, it's Ricardo who took a hiatus. You know, like Duvid's uh, been streaming every week for uh, all that time. And Luke has uh, basically been at it uh, multiple times a week the whole time. Just a couple of Iron Man. Couple of Iron Men. No, I, I, uh, I flew too close to the sun, and I think that uh, I was lucky to walk away mostly unscathed, unlike someone else. I got a crazy thing, like Luke. If uh, this is interesting, in fact, if you want to, you know, if he, he uh, I'm gonna have to go in a few minutes, but uh, this man reached out to me, a new convert to Judaism. And he said he converted to Judaism. What led him to converting to Judaism was my debates on Adam Green. He was a former, not a counter-Semite, but conspiracy theorist and used to watch Adam Green. And uh, and then he saw me uh, debating and, and talking. And he started looking more into Judaism. And he's went through like, uh, I don't know, like a reform local conversion. And he reached out to me and we met up uh, the other day. So he wants to stream. So I might stream uh, in a few minutes, you know, just like uh, teaching the morning prayers, morning blessings. So uh, some positive element uh, that, uh, you know, our work has accomplished. Oh, that's fantastic, David. I mean, that's an amazing story. He's an interesting guy. If he, if he uh, he's got like a bus or something, like uh, he's walking his dogs, but, uh, you know, he might... Uh, um, yeah, I invite him to my house, so he might be in any minute. So if, if, uh, if he wants to pop on and say hello for a minute, the uh, interesting story. Oh yeah. That, well, Judaism. Amazing. Go ahead. Pigo. Judaism hasn't ruined, uh, your guy's life enough that you need to bring others in to ruin <laughs> their life too. I love Judaism. Like, uh, it's tough because, you know, Judaism is a religion and but does Judaism love you. Well, so I'm like, you know, like I still say the prayers. I love being Jewish and doing Jewish things. Being part of a Jewish community is extremely tough. So this was kind of like a godsend, um, you know, because most of my pushback comes from fellow Jews and, uh, you know, because it's part of a community and there's attached politics and perceived, uh, you know, friends and enemies and norms. And, uh, you, you know, like you're not the right person to, you know, spokesperson for the Jews and uh you know claire introduced me to this guy the other day he's out actually in your area maybe on the west coast and uh you know i guess he's like uh i don't know he's a hater but he's like you're, you're not giving the message that we want or you know, like every jew wants to uh you know be like the token jew for the goyim and uh you know it's very difficult to get a unified message so uh i mean me, me and luke talk about that constantly and and you know probably aaron there and Israel, it's hard to be part of a people, but it doesn't change my love of Judaism itself. And also kind of being a representative, uh, you know, each Jew could be a priest in nation on the small level, because like, you know, all Jews, we're small people and are constantly running into Goyim who uh, don't know much about Judaism and have our chance to, uh, you know, be representative of the Jews. I think most Jews enjoy doing that. That's what Judaism is. It's a brotherhood. That we can't really belong to. What do you mean we can't belong to it? I feel like I I do belong to it, and I've 
what do you mean we can't belong to it, uh, Pigger? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I guess I just personally, I just don't, I don't, I don't feel the connection, and and I feel like uh, that they can sniff out the the half Jews, like they they the the full Jews, they know uh, who their brothers are and who you you know who's Who's the uh, mixed breeds? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that that definitely makes it uh, more more challenging. But I think that uh, uh, loneliness and feeling apart from others is, you know, a pattern that some people just get ingrained in in their neuroscience. So the, the way that they respond is is ingrained in a in a method that uh, isolates them. So I, I still think that. Uh, converts and people with like one Jewish parent and one Gentile parent can still make it in Orthodox Judaism. It just may be a little more uh, challenging, but I think ultimately if people are uncomfortable in Orthodox Judaism, then it is primarily has something to do with their own inability to live in close, intense community. It's not really on the community. It's really an individual matter of how they become wired to relate to people. Hello, brother. Hey, Mike. I'm I'm online with my buddy Luke Luke Ford from Los Angeles, Hollywood. If you want to say hi for a minute, he's for a sure. he's a veteran streamer. He's actually talked to with Adam Green. I booked him, and he's been he's been talking to counter Semites, and he's actually a porn blogger. Right on. And uh, and then he's had an interest in like white nationalism. He's been talking to big names, and he streams. Constantly, he's there in Hollywood. He's a convert to Orthodox Judaism. Yeah, you can sit down for a second. Yeah, let me just. I got, I got the coffee. Okay, yeah, sure. Coffee. He actually brought. He's got uh, recording equipment, so it kind of excited this guy. Uh, um, got his own recording equipment. Uh, I'll let you. Uh, um, That's great. We can learn from him. He's going to make our community stronger. Wow, look at that. This that, guy really. That was really some serious stuff. Yeah. Guy knows what he's doing. We we should learn from him. I I said that to Luke and like uh, you know Aaron. Almost all Jews disagree with me, but my experience is like half of converts to Judaism start out as kind of like counter Semites and even Bali Chuva. You know, it's a lot of the skeptics that become the you know that that change their mind because the skepticism is what causes a person to look so into it. I let the uh, just oh, wait for sure. Got more stuff to bring. You. Always take take his shoes off. So I'll let Mike uh, pop in yeah. here for a second. Interesting yeah, story. He's got a bus. He calls the portable shul when he was driving around Magic the country. Shul Magic shul bus. He's kind of like a former drug addict, uh, but uh, now he's a uh, you know for Brent, uh, you know Jew, and he loves Judaism. So. Fabrenta Jew means uh, passionate. Fabrenta is uh, Hey, what up, bro? How's it going? Hello. Shalom. 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 So what, what led you to want to convert to Judaism? Um, well, it's a, it's a long story, but um, I began about Run. Seven, Run. seven or eight years ago. I began an exploration with, um, with psilocybin, um, lysergic acid, dimethyltryptamine, um, shamanic and theogenic experiences. Um, spent most of my, I was raised Catholic, spent most of my life, uh, 
I declared at the time as an atheist, but I was really just a confused skeptic, but um, was very pragmatic, uh, didn't buy into dogma, conventional ideas, religions, all that type of stuff. Thought the Abrahamic religions was just people that bought into it were just delusional. But um, after years of um, shamanic experiences at deep, deep levels, um, I came to understand that, uh, that simply put, I was wrong. I was very wrong. Um, there was much I didn't know about spirituality, about religion, about monotheistic understanding of creation. And um, slowly, it took years and years, but my heart began to soften. And um, eventually, you know, found my way into a local neighborhood shul, synagogue, and began sojourning and began my journey and was met with the most wonderful, amazing people you could possibly want to meet. So wow. um, my, my journey into Judaism has been a beautiful one. And uh, I can't be more thankful to be where I'm at now. So, wow. And so, what effect has it had on you making this journey? Um, well, I mean, you know, an inner peace and an outer peace like I've never known before. You know, most of my life I've struggled with, like, like most folks, I've struggled with all sorts of issues and problems and anxieties and depressions and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and uh, the more the more um, stubborn I became in, in my younger years toward um, accepting um, the love of my Heavenly Father, the more that I fought that, the more that I resisted that, the more corroded I became inside. And even the last couple of years before I found my way into Judaism, um, consuming... Um, you know, counter-Semitic, anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist type, consuming that type of media only rotted me out further. And, um, and um, like I said, get, be, my journey into Judaism has just been filled with wonderful people, love, and uh, a deeper understanding about life. Do you so, know what, what, what switched you from the counter-Semite to the philo-Semite? You know, can you remember what shifted you well i mean yeah I told him it was me he reached out to me but maybe <laughs> it wasn't just me he said he saw me on adam green that's how he came onto my content well yeah yeah um you know i that's how i that's how i became aware of duvid here was you know every so often on adam green's podcast duvid would come on you know for respectful um discussion and debate and I always liked the way he carried himself, you know, um, and the way he the way he rep represented Jews and the, um, I, I it left a very good impression with me early on. Uh, but the the reality, though, what actually I mean, what really turned me, though, was, like I said, um, my deep uh, and theogenic experiences, specifically with psilocybin and um they're deep visionary experiences and they're it's it's hard to talk about but it, it was my it was my shamanic experiences that really kind of flipped the switch for me so yeah so you you moved out of your habitual ways of thinking and experiencing life and moved into a whole new realm i assume that you had not experienced before absolutely yes 
so, so your conversion is complete. You're already a converted Jew. Mixed so, yeah. So, well, so I, on the 11th of Nissan, 5782, which would have been April 12th. Of, Just to tell Michael, that's Aaron in Jerusalem. So you're talking to Aaron in Jerusalem and Luke in Hollywood. Beautiful. Shalom, brothers. Um, yeah, no, I uh, I went through the convert. I spent about a year in in the in the program and um, went to the McVeigh just a little over a year ago. Now I went through a con uh, a conservative um, conversion program, and I still have much to learn. Long way to go. I'm still still working on my Hebrew and my fluidity. I'm, I want to get into chanting. Um, hopefully with the, with the help of Duvid here, I'll, I'll, I'll get, go further with that, but I'm sure as you both know, it's, it's, um, there, there's much to be learned. So it's a lifetime pursuit, but yeah, it was about a year ago. I went to the McVeigh. And what's it like? Why, learn, why do you have to be a Jew? I'm sorry. Why do you have to be a Jew? Why, why can't you just like read the, the uh, Torah, be inspired with it? Why do you have to be a Jew specifically? Why do I have to be a Jew specifically? Well, you could you could still be inspired by a lot of teachings. It could affect your life. You don't need to be a Jew. Well, it again it ties into it. it it's a long conversation, and, and uh, I don't know if if you folks if you have any experience with um, with psychedelics and theogenics, but it's it's it's. Um, it's a long conversation. It really is. Um, it's a calling. It's very personal to me. Um, things that happen inside of my psychedelic experiences urged me to walk this path. And this wasn't an overnight thing. It wasn't like I took mushrooms one night and then all of a sudden overnight I said, that's it. I'm going to become a Jew. That's my calling. It was years and years and years of waking up, opening my heart. I'm sorry. I've been living in Israel for 20 years and I can say that it would take a guy to take mushrooms in order to convert to Judaism. That's what it looks like to me. Like sure. that's what it, that's what it would need. Well, whatever, you know, I, I, like I said, I was raised in a Catholic household, but dogma never, never, I, I just simply reading words was not enough for me. You know, um, I, I needed to take it a step further and, um, I'm I'm trying to find in, I'm trying to find community with other Jews who have similar experiences to myself, uh, or even converts um, who have a similar story to mine. I know it's it, when I tell people that I largely converted due to psychedelic experiences, it's a little baffling to them. Most people drift, I think, more toward Eastern religions um, as opposed to Judaism. I've never met another person who's converted converted to Judaism as a result of taking mushrooms. So. Um, but it's a deeply focused That's the only explanation I could understand. Sure. But, sure. but Peggy, you shouldn't, he's already made the move. I mean, it's like you're telling someone. He's made some moves, but there's still, there's still hope. He's just a, did a, a conservative conversion. It's not, it doesn't count. Wait, wait, hang on, hang on, Pigger. Um, it, it does count for millions and millions of Jews. Most Jews in the world will accept him a, as Jewish. And, He's already married Judaism. Like you, 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 what you're saying is the equivalent of a guy who's gotten married, and then you tell him six months after the wedding, you know, why the hell did you marry this woman? It, it, once you've gotten married, it, it's it's not a very nice thing to say to someone you shouldn't have married that person. I'm telling you that the priest that you that married you is just like some guy that worked in Las Vegas. He's not a real priest that married you. 
that Pika, that's a horrible thing to to say. It's a it's a rabbi and it's someone who has accepted millions of Jews in the world accept this guy's conversion. And so you're not even you you're not even practice Orthodox Judaism. So go ahead. And it's uh, Judaism near where he came from. So saying like that was those are the Jews of the community that he's part of. This was this is what I feel sorry for him for, like to to to, to get involved with us. Why? Why would you feel sorry? Why? He seems like a nice guy to me. Why do you feel sorry for him? Because you have trouble with Jews. Why do you think he will? Because he blames his failures in life on Judaism. God forbid. I mean, Aaron. I I see what it is. It's a trial. Failures in life on Judaism, in there instead of himself. No, I blame my my failures on myself. Thank you very much, but. Jews are a tough people to get along with. You, you, you guys can't say differently. No, that that's true. Where the Jews are challenging people. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. That's, that's basically my only point. Why why get involved with such a difficult people when you have such nice going? They're so nice to be with. I, I brother, I love the Jew style, man. Uh, you know, and the oh. funny thing is, throughout my all my counter-Semitic years. I was frothing at the mouth with all of this corrosion in my heart and didn't realize that all of my favorite musicians, entertainers, filmmakers, authors, everything, I looked around and I was going, I truly love the Jewish people. And I, I wasn't sure where this was coming from, but something- like you're talking to Luke Ford, our man in Hollywood. Something was disconnected there. And finally I woke up and said, you know, this is not the right way. This is not, um, this is not this is not the way to truth, and that that's what I seek ultimately. That's where this journey started. Truth, um, we, truth speaker. Well, what you could do is go to the center of the truth to Israel, and then all those uh, artists that you fell in love with, they don't exist in Israel. So maybe one day you'll talk more. Of Luke then you Ford can get that story. idea. I'll let you borrow Luke Ford's book if you want, but I mean he's been in Hollywood for like twenty years. For sure. For sure. Uh, maybe he's going to have a different Jewish experience than you've had, uh, Pigger. Yeah, maybe. I, I mean, we're just exchanging our, our personal experiences. I mean, I'm not saying I'm I'm the last uh, the last word on everything, of course. Well, you know, and I'm willing to go as deep as as required because the the not to get too That's far what I'm afraid of, of the end goal is to get to Israel. That is to, to, to get to Yerushalayim. That is the, the end goal. That is my, whether it's to go there for a few years or to spend the remainder of my life there, I need to make my first Aliyah and, and go home. Um, that's very important to me. So if so I do that I, first, I'm, I'm not first. sure right now, where it stands, I don't know with my, because I'm totally willing to convert Orthodox at some point, if necessary, not even so much for acceptance by the community, but if that's what's required at some point to 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 immigrate and to get and to get to Israel, then I'll do what's required. So, what do you think about the idea that Jews are a difficult hey, people? This, this guy's trolling, right? This guy's got to be trolling. No, I mean, come on, man. This is come ridiculous. on, man. Come on, man. Wendell's in Mid America, and he's just like a high IQ businessman who married a half Jew. Dude, I'm, I'm more Jewish he also than this guy. Loves counter-Semitic uh, content, but his you know son is a quarter Jew. And uh, he, no, he's that's not even true. Introduced not me even to, true. Uh, to speak to all the counter semites. So, like, the reason you met Duvid is because of Luke Ford. And uh, I mean, Ricardo is actually, you know, fake, uh, he hides his identity. But, uh, but like, but like, how did you, how did you, like, 
end up like watching, you know, you've done all this learning about these people and you're like, you know what? Like the more I learn, the more I just want to be on their team. It's, it's, I mean, even Pigger's appalled. I'm talking from the source, man. I'm talking talking from from Jerusalem. It's, it's not a coincidence that we've met. No. Uh, Ricardo, have you taken psychedelics? Maybe if you took some, you would convert to Judaism as well. No, but it is funny. I, I think I think Aaron's right on his nail on the head when he says that, like, that's what it would take. I mean, that's what it would take. I mean, something tells me this is going to be a very temporary thing, and there's, like, another phase coming. He you know, found like, Duvid, like, if he found his way to Red Duvid, like, he's probably going to make his way in Judaism. Yeah, also, I got to say, like, Mazel Tov to Duvid for, uh, for managing, for going on. Does Adam Green know that he, like, led someone to Judaism? Does he know that? Is I that called that the first time we met. I called Adam Green, like, you know, he never met Adam. He just listened to him. And I, I told Adam, like, you know, this guy's listening to your show. He's a Jew now. And hopefully Mike <laughs> is going to be on the Adam Green show and uh, tell about his experience. Like, you know, like, uh, stick it to all the counter Semites. You know, like, Duvid now is teaming up with the uh, new recruit Jews. <laughs> All right, well, this is too funny. Luke, this is why you bring people on, okay? To Pigger's point. And Pigger says that he's not the guy to bring people on. This is all him. So congratulations, Pigger. Yeah. All right, man. Yeah, this is, this is beautiful. Um, ha- have you experienced <laughs> Jews as a difficult people, Mike? Has that been your experience? No. No, not at all. No. How many Jews do you know? Well, I mean, I'm speaking solely on the, the folks at you know my oh, organizations. I meant guys, not not women. Women don't shouldn't shouldn't come on. But no, my experiences with other Jews that I've met have been the most. If if there were ever such an ambassador for God's people, it, it, it's the Jewish folks I've met. And uh, Claire Core, is there anything you've heard so far that you want to comment on? Well, I was just wondering, okay, th- this is what I've heard what um, an Orthodox rabbi saying, and, and he's saying the, these Gentiles who convert to Judaism, they don't realize what's going to happen to them because it's like we Jews, we get punished for all these things that for them is perfectly okay, like breaking the Sabbath and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, and and they won't be able to adapt and they don't understand. And then, you know, I guess if God exists, you're you're, you're just going to be punished for, you know, all the stuff, you know, and the 36 capital offenses. Um, And, okay, this is an ultra-Orthodox rabbi. And and, and basically... um, uh, the ultra orthodox basically regard the reformed Jews as heretics. So I, I don't know if you know that. I mean, I didn't realize that for ages. I was sort of kind of uh, under, trying to work out, you know, uh, studying, you know, Jews, and and it, it wasn't until, until years later that I was talking to an, an, an ultra orthodox rabbi, and he said, "Well, um, you know, we regard them as heretics." So, uh, Mike, how do you deal with the dissension in in Jewish life, where you know Jews often have very strong views about what it means to be Jewish and what's the appropriate approach to Torah and to Judaism, and often you know very passionately disagree with each other and may call well, you know, someone a bigot or a heretic or whatever. 
that's the thing. I mean, I come from a very unorthodox place to entering it because most of the converts I meet, you know, they, they were raised in a fundamentally, you know, Christian household. They were Christians most of their lives and they just felt something was off in Christianity and made kind of a clean jump from one Abrahamic faith to the next. And my, my story is not like that at all. And, um, I, you know, I don't hide them that I'm a convert and I don't hide my origin story. In fact, I'm, I'm very open and forthcoming about it. Um, but it can be, I mean, I've always been welcomed and, and welcomed receptively, but you know, it, that is the one, I don't want to say the one kind of disconnect, but I, I I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find, not trying to find, but there, to me, there is a, a definitive connection within the psychedelic experience. Um, and um, I mean, transcendental experience in, in, in general. Um, if, if you really, and this is something I wanna get further in with Duvid, but if you really want the definitive answer on what flipped the switch and got me into a Jewish mindset, um, and one of my particular visionary experiences, I, with complete clarity and lucidity, um, had, had interpreted visions of the shield of David and that in the moment unequivocally um, told me that that the Jews are God's chosen people on this planet deputies if you will um, it doesn't make us better than anyone but we have a special role here on this planet we are emissaries and Torah is is is, is God's truth to to his people and to the world um, so, but there is, there is, it is, like I said, my story is, is, is not common. So, like I said, I've always been welcomed warmly, but you know, there, I, I, currently I do practice my own sort of flavor and blend of Judaism. And uh, I try not to get hung up too much on what other people think about it. I don't talk about it. I don't preach. And that's what I love about the Jewish people too. You know, I don't feel the need to convert anyone, bring anybody else into this, talk anybody else into this. I don't share this with people unless prompted. I love talking about it and I'm proud of where I am and who I am, but um, I don't, I don't. Um, you're you not know, pushing I, it on anyone. Sure. You know, we're, we're inviting you. You're, you're an honored guest here. Uh, have you been circumcised? Yes. And what was that like? Well, that, that happened at birth, so. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, that, so, that could oh, be that's, very That's painful. a relief. <laughs> sure, sure. Can I ask one little question? Did, did you consider anything else? Baha'i, Islam, um, other yes, kinds? Yeah, well, yeah. So I, uh, I spent several years exploring a lot of different um, faiths, spiritualities, even my own special blend of, uh, I don't know, a solipsistic type worldview. I explored a lot. I, I come from a background of um uh, shamanism and um visionary experiences i would frequent i used to frequent a earth-based church here in metro detroit um where we would have our mushroom ceremonies and stuff like that you know um so i'm, I'm a big terence mckenna listener you know uh years listening to leary and ram das and yeah no i've explored a lot of different pathways and um and i still don't know where exactly i stand on that with regard to um i mean judea torah is truth and I'm proud to be a Jew, but I, I, I'm not ready at the same time, though, to unequivocally say it's the only way, you know, because that is I, I, I'm not confident enough to say that. I don't know that. I know that Torah is truth, 
and that Torah is the way and through Hashem. But at the same time, I'm not willing to discredit anything else. Mm-hmm. Well, what is a gear? I mean, what is uh, or, darn it? But yeah. So what's what's a gear? What is a gear? Yeah. Is is that it's not a, is it's not a, is that not a convert, but someone who observes and sojourns with the Jewish people, but is it necessarily right. that's what we that's what we call the converts yeah the the gear is the the convert and then there's also another category the you know the, the righteous who don't want to convert but they want to um the, the followers of the noahide laws yeah but so, what we're really saying is uh, a convert is someone who is just uh, on the outside what do you mean just on the outside plenty of converts are very much on the inside of judaism a lot of that's converts the, are... that's the meaning of, that's the meaning of, of gear you should be kind to the to the gear because you were you were a gear in egypt oh stranger so there's words have many different meanings so one word for the for the for the gear means can mean stranger and we, we've all known the experience of being strangers so that that's you know, one one basis for the Jewish teaching that you should be kind to converts because they come in as strangers joining our community, and we've all had the experience of being strangers, and it's frequently an unpleasant one. Me and Luke Ford have talked so about hours, and one yeah. of the main things we mentioned, I was telling Mike, you know, when we first, Judaism is a religion more of practice, not belief. Um, but like as a convert, Michael's a believer, and so he has a connection to god and interacting with god as a jew and maybe interacting with other people feeling as a jew as were most jews it's just tribal and about practice not belief and so that's like a dynamic and maybe luke is not so much more a believer more a practicer and has fallen into like you know the jewish people but i was mentioning it to michael his dynamic and saying like he believes in god even though like belief isn't that key part of judaism Right. So most Jews don't talk a lot about their personal relationship with God. But for me, it was it was a huge thing in my first few years in Judaism. But then I moved towards more of a, a tribal relationship. But uh, there's room in Judaism for many different approaches. Uh, Mike, is there anything you've heard that you'd like to comment on? Uh, no, not in particular, not at this time. Uh, Claire, any, anything you've heard you'd like to comment on? Um, I, I was just wondering about um, being a no-hide. Did you ever consider being a no-hide and just staying a no-hide? No, it never even crossed my mind for the simple fact that my the way that I'm put together, it's it's when I become convicted about something and it's important to me, you know, like I said, eventually I plan to get to Israel. So it's 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 everything for me and it's it's the focal point of my life. So um, to and I'm, I'm not trying to insinuate that being a Noahide is 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 only going halfway. Um, but uh, for me, I, I, I wanted to to take it all the way. Mm-hmm. Have you and been to Israel? I have not. No. But you want to go and live there? Most so. certainly. Most certainly. Oh, OK. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, Piggy, you've lived there for 20 years. It's been a blessing, right? Oh, how do I save this boy? How do I save you? He seems like such a nice man. And still, what, what are you in your mid thirties? Thirty-five. I got it perfectly. You still have a chance, man. You could you could turn away, 
turn away. Live a look. Uh, we're supposed to be on the goyim, right? Light unto the, the nations. The, the, light unto the nations. You could be one of the nations. You don't need to be the light. What is a light? Like you're in a dark room. A light goes on. Big deal. You could be a part of that room. You could be do doing. You could be cooking uh, dinner in your kitchen or something. You know, not just t turning on the light. Be He's the already light gotten the married. Is, is, He's already gotten even married such a big deal. to the religion. He can't. He can't leave now. He's in it. He's, no, he's uh, 100%. No, no, he didn't. All the, everybody in Israel will tell you you're safe. Even like the uh, secular Jews will tell you. 80% of Jews will say, 90% of Jews will, will say you're safe. You, you're not real, a, a Jew yet. He can't, he can't, he can't uh, make, uh, claim citizenship. Yes, he can. He right can now. make Aliyah. He can. He can claim Israeli citizenship. So, as, a con as a conservative? As a convert to conservative or even reform Judaism, he can claim citizenship I know, I know fairly recently, I know there was some, I'm sure some, one of you can clarify more, but uh, there, there, was, there was some changes, some court rulings and stuff like that, where I guess they're, they agreed to be a little more lenient on, on con conversions and where it's done and, and stuff like that for immigration, but... Yeah, yeah, I read that too. That that you can convert just to reform Judaism, and and the um, religious Jews were up in arms. Sure, but he, he recognizes that uh, being Jewish is not an easy path, and so if he has to un undergo some you know, more rigorous tests, I mean, Mike, you seem quite up for you know whatever tests come your way in your Jewish journey. For sure, absolutely. I mean, you understand this isn't an easy life. Absolutely. Just whatever comes my way, whatever Run. comes my way, I'm ready to I'm ready to take it on. But not everyone you chooses the easy path. Like some people like to choose the challenging path. But go ahead, Claire. Oh, this is burning question about my kind of equating dropping acid with converting to Judaism, and I kind of wanted to know more about that. Um, Unless he's already answered the question, but I, I didn't. Well, I think I it just opened up. That. I'll speak for you, Mike, and then you can add to it if you care to or correct sure. me. But uh, taking psychedelics opened up possibilities to you. It opened up neural pathways. It, it uh, kind of cleaned away some habitual patterns of thinking and relating to the world, to the universe, that then placed you in a place where you could consider possibilities that you never could have considered before. Is, is that fair, Mike? Couldn't have said itself. Couldn't couldn't have said it better myself. Absolutely. Uh, Luke, you. come on. You you see, Mike here, such a nice boy. Look at yourself at thirty-five. You wouldn't want to tell him uh, to turn away from from all this. Absolutely not. I'm very happy with my conversion oh to Judaism. It, it initially happened at age twenty-seven, but I decided at age twenty-two that that was the direction I was going to go. Me and Luke have agreed uh, on this point that. Uh, not a single person told me, you know, becoming an Orthodox Jew was a good decision. Uh, in fact, almost everyone who knew me well tried to talk me out of it, but I consider it the best decision I ever made. And I think Luke uh, agreed on that point. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing journey. It's a very, Jewish life is very intense and it's very challenging, but it's also equally rewarding. For sure. Kind of strange and, that... Uh... Okay, never mind, never mind. And uh, uh, Mike, what do you think about the idea that Jews don't seek converts? Because most religions do seek converts, but Jews are unusual in that they not only don't seek converts, they 
tend to take a lot of steps to discourage converts. You know, I, I mean, there's a reason for that. You know, this is the, the Judaism in particular, I think even within the context of the Abrahamic faiths is the hardest to, it's the hardest to digest for the simple fact that it's, it's incredibly abstract, right? It's, I mean, even the, the the information that is contained in Torah, uh, the information that is contained in, in, in the wisdom of the pages, it's, it's not easily digestible for most people. Um, It, you know, it's, it's a, it's a calling. It's a very small percentage of people that are, I don't want to say worthy, but that are willing to, you know, adhere to the observances, the practices, the laws, the codes, like you got, like you were talking about. It's, it's, it's not easy being a Jew. And, and, um, you know, you don't, you know, I, I, and I really appreciate that about my Jewish brothers and sisters that it's, it's, I mean, I was welcomed with open arms, but I have friends that have gone to Orthodox schools and yeah, they're, they're a little more reticent about bringing them in, or they really want to make sure that, you know, they want to make sure that you're not a flake too. They want to make sure you don't come in, screw up, you know, you, you know, you come around for a little while, go to the McVeigh and then, and then, you know, you you flake out on them. So I, I think it's fine. I, 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 I like the, I don't even like to say exclusionary aspect of it, but you know, they, we want the best and the brightest, you know, we want those who are determined, disciplined and, and, and willing to, uh, you know, I don't know, w- willing to be full bore about everything. So yeah, I think I thought it really attracted me that they weren't seeking converts. I remember when I told my dad, when I finally finished my conversion, he said, well, they're certainly not like the Seventh-day Adventists out there trying to convert people. So I respect and like that Jews don't see converts. You know, I think that's For pretty sure. cool. Absolutely. And ha- how have your non-Jewish friends and family reacted to your conversion? Absolutely wonderful. Nothing but support and love. I, I was, be honest with you, I mean, I was a little nervous at first to tell my parents because, you know, my 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 dad anyway is very born again. Um you know, and I wasn't sure how they'd respond to it. And um, they were incredibly, all my friends and family were incredibly supportive, wonderful. And anyone that wasn't willing to be supportive, you know, um, doesn't have a place in my life anymore. If they're not willing to at least, uh, you know, say good for you, brother. And, you know, God bless. But no, everyone's been great. I've, I haven't. So they're, they're, go ahead. They're, 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 they're thinking that uh, Judaism is better than drugs. But they're wrong. <laughs> uh, well, no, I mean, my dad was because I, like I said, I spent my teen, teens and early twenties as a, as just an uh, stubborn, just ardent. You know, there is no God. There is no deeper meaning to life. There is no divine creation behind existence. There is no telos to life. And my dad, when I told him I was converting, he was so thankful that i had he didn't care what it was he was so thankful that i had found um you know peace in in communion with with the with the divine so he my my parents were incredibly supportive uh pigger when did you become so negative about the the tribe when did you turn I love, I mean, I try to love the tribe. I know you're supposed to love the tribe. That's that's my biggest problem is loving the tribe. I love God. I love Israel. Come on, the tribe is a pain in the butt. How are they, how are they not? They're awful. 
they're not friendly, they're not uh, good, they're not even, they're, they're not interesting even. They're awful. But wh when did you have this realization? Have you always known this or does this happen recently? Uh, I've always like n tuned into Jews, I guess, less than, than the, I've, I've always said uh, the uh, Christians were ni nicer than Jews. I thought my dad's side of the family was nicer than my mom's side of the family. They were more sane than my mom's side of the family. And what about the difference between Israeli Jews and American Jews? How would you describe that? You've lived in Israel for approximately 20 years. Oh, uh, between Woody Allen and, uh, and uh, Rambo, I guess. <laughs> That's the difference. So the Israeli difference Jews like, are more uh, intense. Hold, hold, my, hold my gun, I need a pee. Yeah. What? Israeli Jews are more intense. They're more hardcore, more committed. Yeah, I mean, like the army is, a, I think the army is getting fake, but for a long time, the army wasn't a fake thing. Like you go to the army, there's, there's a chance you're going to see some action and the action is meaningful. You're, you're actually defending your uh, homeland. And that has a profound effect of, of, about your character. And it's the re one of the reasons why I tuned in to uh, this form of Judaism, the, the national Judaism. Um, but yeah, that would be the difference. And uh, what about honesty in business? Do you encounter do you, more honesty in business from the tribe or from, say, Christians? The, the way I feel about Jews is that Jews take it to the extreme. So it, you can get like an extremely honest Jew, an extreme uh, uh, crook, and they're and uh, the goyim are more in the in the center. Okay, yeah, it, that, those those extremes. And uh, uh, Mike, did you find that uh, some some of your non-Jew Jewish friends or family found it threatening at all? That you you know converted to this what would be a strange religion? No, no, no. I mean, I've definitely I've definitely gotten strange looks from people on the on the peripheral of my life, but the, the core folks in my life now they were incredibly supportive. Can I talk to your parents? <laughs> <He's kidding. laughs> How did you get off uh, hard drugs, uh, Mike? Well, to be fair, and I, I'm not um, see. I like to, to, to distinguish a little more nuance when I, I, cause drugs is a pejorative, right? I, I don't even care for the term drugs. Um, I don't smoke crack. I don't use heroin. I don't smoke meth or fentanyl. Or I, I'm not, I'm not a drug user. You know, I'm a hippie. I love my cannabis mushrooms, um, DMT acid, little MDMA. I'm, you know, I, I I'm, I'm very recreational too. And, um, disciplined about how I do these things, you know? So it, th this is an, this is a shamanic experiment for me. This is not like, you know, I wasn't on the streets when I was a teenager smoking crack, you know, it's not, it's not like I was a drug addict like that. So this is a deep, serious practice for me. And w was there a time when it wasn't a deep, serious practice? In, in other words, have you done these shamanic recreational substances wrong? And have you also done them right? And can yeah. you oh, delineate yeah. Oh, yeah. the difference yeah, between yeah, doing no, these the substances right and wrong? Yeah, the first few years of experimentation, going to parties, 
hanging out with unsavory people doing unsavory things um oh yeah yeah i've i've, I've done it wrong as well and uh it's terrifying so w what can you tell people about the right ways and the wrong ways to do these substances well you know you hear a lot of talk conversation about set and setting you know which is important you know it's because it, it, i mean it's enjoyable to take mushrooms but it's there's a there, it's a deep spiritual practice, you know, and, and you can use it for a variety of things. It can be for self-improvement, spiritual depth, you know, um, trauma, you know, pain relief at lower doses, whatever you, whatever you're, you know, but, but have a somewhat noble intention as to why you're doing what you're doing instead of just to go out on Friday night and get effed up, you know, um, and to do it in a peaceful, relaxing, comfortable setting, you know, plenty of water, you know, um, you know, just, yeah, set and setting is important. You don't have to be in a, because people are often, they get this confused where you have to be in the perfect mindset and you got to be in a good attitude and all this type of stuff to engage in these experiences. That's not true. But you, you do need to have some maturity about what you hope to get out of this, set intentions about where you hope to go. And for me, like I said, when I started taking mushrooms and psychedelics, this wasn't, you know, I want to find God. I want to, you know, find truth. It was honestly just, I serendipitously found LSD and started tripping a little bit. And it was just, at first it was kind of fun, but then the more I got into it and the more I peeled back, the more I peeled back, the more I peeled back, the more I kept finding breadcrumb trails from the, from divine source, from the divine source of life. And, um, I couldn't ignore it. I, and I, and I couldn't go back to sleep. So what I will say though, is that I, you know, I, before I got into psychedelics, I did lead a more unhealthy life. I used to consume alcohol more, you know, party, get in, get in trouble, you know, find myself in the emergency room every now and again, doing stupid stuff. And when I started taking psychedelics, it very quickly caused me to reform my life. And it's funny because back in the fifties and sixties for the short period of time that LSD was still, it was still legal uh, and was being used by uh, psychiatrists. Um, it was a tool for a short period to reform people's behaviors and attitudes given to drug addicts, alcoholics, things like that schizophrenics to readjust and refocus their perception in their life. Cause it does really, if you do it the right way and you take enough, it will really cause you, there's a lot of self-reflection that goes on, um, cause you to want to clear your life out and clean yourself up. Wow. And uh, how about frequency? What, what have you found is an ideal sweet spot frequency for imbibing these substances? The, well, honestly, the, the older I get, the less and less I do it now. My, my high dose experimentation days are largely behind me. Um, these days, maybe every few months, you know, I'll, I'll get into, and I don't take shamanic level half ounce, three quarter ounce doses anymore. It's Every, you know, every few, every couple of weeks, few months, whatever, I'll have a gram here, I'll have a gram there, you know, and just meditation. I incorporate a lot of Jewish practice now into, um, into my experiences, which is beautiful. Um, so it's, it's fairly infrequent now. Judaism has largely taken the place of, and that's, that's my aim. I, I desire to reach transcendental levels um, through Judaism comparable to what i would experience on the mushrooms that's my goal oh my god and and how do you have you found any vehicles towards that for some people it might be study of torah for some people it might be prayer for other people it might be meditation for other people it might be extreme exercise what what are some non-substance vehicles to transcendence that chanting. work for you chanting singing 
chanting, singing, Hebrew, um, Torah. Um, like I said, I'm that that is my because sound is such a crucial component of I mean creation in general, but it's 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 sound is a is a an eternal transcendental vehicle um, to connect with the divine. And I've always been very musically inclined and 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 with sound and everything. So uh, my goal is to um, and I, I've only just doing the Shema because every once in a while I'll go to shul, I'll take the Torah out, they let you know I'll do the Shema. And that it, it is in itself um, feeling the vibration, chanting the Hebrew. It, it, it's it's on another level. It's I, I have I, it's visionary. Um, so that is my goal uh, to become fluent enough and proficient enough with my Hebrew to chant. And um, yeah, that's my what vehicle. about congregational singing when you're all singing in tune, swaying in tune? Is that a transcendent Absolutely, experience? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Luke, uh, yes, okay. I, I'm going to bounce. Uh, okay, bro. Th thanks for uh, yep. inviting yep. me. I just want to leave uh, how I started. Uh, sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Almond Joy has nuts, Mounds don't, but they both have coconut, so it's all nuts. Beautiful words to live by. Thanks, thanks, Bigger. Uh, Claire, you've been listening for a while. Is there anything you want to weigh in on? Okay. I guess uh, Claire's fallen asleep. But uh, do you have any favorite uh, chants or, or passages of the Torah, uh, Mike, that particularly move you? I mean, like I said, I'm still very rudimentary in my Hebrew and my chanting. Um, the Shema still just is is for me is electric when I when I recite that, especially holding the Torah in front of the congregation. Um, Can you recite it for us? I'm sorry. Can you recite it for us? Um, well, sure. Yeah, for sure. I can, I can the, just, just the opening line too. Uh, yeah. just the opening line. <clears throat> Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Wow, that, that was powerful. And, and and you you're clearly musical, so yeah. Yeah, chanting is that's where I want to get. So I'm I'm trying to uh, consume as much information as I can, uh, literature, um, mentors around me, so that I can proficiently get to that point where I'm chanting and um, yeah, fluidly. Thank you. And uh, do you have a reaction, Mike, to all the Jews who have kind of a, a befuddlement about converts? many Jews think, you know, why on earth would you do this to yourself? No, you know, you know, I, uh, I understand that my position and where I come from, I understand this is all, it's a little weird, you know, and I don't, I don't expect people to accept me. Um, the only thing I expect is, is respect. You know, I, I don't expect people to understand. I, that's what I say too, because I come from the other side of the fence, because I used to be a disbeliever, because I used to carry doubt in my heart. I understand where, where the atheists come from. I still understand where the counter Semites and the anti-Zionists come from. I, 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 I feel sorry for them and I feel forgiveness in my heart for them, but I don't, I don't hold it against those who hate me or, or, or don't, don't accept me or, you know, not everyone's going to like you. Not everyone's going. Not everyone's going to accept you for who you are or who who you think you are. So, you know, 
I just try to carry myself the, the, the best that I can each day. And, um, and, and that's the thing too, you know, not preaching about what I believe or what I read or what I do, just carrying myself with love and light and treating people with respect. And, and hopefully that radiates outward. Okay. Uh, Mike, I'm going to start to wrap up the show. Any, any final words, anything you want to add, Mike? No, sir. Okay. Great to talk to you. And, uh, Likewise. And, uh, and this week we moved uh, good karma here, you know, power of the streaming. So I just met Mike, he reached out to me and uh, we might stream on my channel, uh, maybe even today and go over some of these uh, basic prayers. Great. So uh, look forward to that. Uh, Claire, any final words from you for today? Uh, no, thank you for having me. It's been um, quite an experience. So um, um, thanks again, Luke, and enjoy the rest of your, your um, Sunday. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.